Trying to score from the plug today I sure could use a shot Zannies are helping but I need more Guess I'll smoke some pot I'm about to go insane Everybody does cocaine. You shoot your dope, I'll smoke some crack. Junkies are all the same. I wanna be where everybody does cocaine. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a treatment center that treated addicts through compassion and connection rather than control. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, and have decades and decades of experience in working with dysfunctional addicts like ourselves. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including surfing, equine therapy, fucking sound bath meditation, the super spiritual sweat lodge, and much, much more. They are experts at treating withdrawal. If you're kicking benzos or alcohol or heroin, they make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible. Basically, if I was all fucked up, I know I would want to go to Aloe. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I strongly suggest going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, which is of course the dating app for addicts who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict helping another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got fucking sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Fire Island? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or the Google Play Store. And by the way, it's fucking completely free. And also, by the way, they have new features including video chatting. If you're struggling with clean and sober love, stick it out. They need more people to make a better pool so you have a better chance of a love connection. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of Dopey Patreon. And I've been seeing a lot of people waving the Dopey Patreon flag, and I cannot thank you enough Throw a little bit of money to Dopey Patreon. Help me make Dopey full-time. I know you guys love Dopey. Throw fucking 50 cents a week. That's like fucking 8 cents a day. $2 a month. Help me keep Dopey as happy, joyous, and free as possible. And more importantly, let me donate all of my time to it. Last week on the Patreon, we have Dopey legend Jeremy Tidy Whitey Turner. Check it out. It is a uh, classic trip down dopey memory lane, plus what Jeremy is doing now. Uh, It's at www.patreon.com slash dopey podcast. It's free, so check it out.
We have crazy gear available at the Dopey Store at DopeyPodcast.com, where we partner with also fellow heroin addicts in recovery at SRO Prince. We just came out with the Good So Bad Long Sleeve Tea, which is perfect for the fall. We have the Good So Bad Tank. We got coffee mugs. We got a lot of good stuff. And if you want the stickers, you go to me. Venmo me at Dopey Podcast, and I'll send stickers. I have a few classic Dopey snapbacks as well. Shipping went out. Look for your stickers. They are in the mail. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm in the attic, and it's got to be like, literally, it's got to be 112 degrees up here. And the humidity has to be closing in on 100%. And I'm drinking my icy seltzer, which is just delicious. And um, I'm reflecting on the beauty that is the Dopey podcast and the Dopey Nation. And I want to thank everybody for uh, reaching out in support of my five years This Sunday, I'm going to celebrate at my meeting, and it really kicked up a lot of weird stuff in me. I don't know if it kicked up weird stuff in me or I just had the weird stuff already, but the fact of the matter is, besides the fact that, like, I'm not using drugs and I'm not thinking about using drugs and I'm not close to getting high, like, things are kind of slipping for me. I have weird shit coming out in weird places, and I'm struggling, And uh, I know this because I'm getting angry all the time and I'm feeling fearful all the time and I I want things to be in a way that they are not. And it could be, you know, it could definitely be related to COVID because I hear this from a lot of people who aren't in recovery or aren't addicts. Lots of people are struggling. I find that I'm struggling, so I want to talk about it. I find that I'm getting very quick to anger in situations that I don't want to be quick to anger. I'm going to tell you a little story. It's not a happy story. The other night, we finished doing Patreon. Great Jeremy Turner was on, if you heard. He was great. And I wanted to celebrate with a little bit of ice cream. So I went downstairs, and we had a little bit left of the Ben & Jerry's Brownie Batter Core Ice Cream, which I really strongly recommend. I bought it for me and Nora to share. The first night, she had had dessert somewhere else, so she missed it. And this night, she was downstairs. And by the time she came upstairs, I had already put peanut butter in it. And she doesn't like peanut butter. She was was like, Daddy, I thought I was going to have some ice cream. And I didn't save her any. And I was like, and she goes, Daddy, do you want to watch Naked and Afraid XL Clothed and Opinionated? Which is basically like they take a bunch of Naked and Afraid contestants and they make them watch... Uh, Naked and Afraid XL And they like talk shit about people and stuff And me and Nora think it's funny And I was like definitely So I hooked Nora up with a little bit of dark chocolate I had a little bit on the side And she was satisfied with that And we went to go watch the show And we had started it already on demand So when we put it on again We couldn't fast forward to the spot we were at Because it doesn't let you fast forward Which is such a stupid uh, thing that in demand does It's like why would they do that If you're renting something in demand, shouldn't you be able to rejoin at the same spot? So my anger was bubbling up already and didn't come on. And Nora, as I've told you, is obsessed with Hamilton. So I've decided that the show we should watch now is John Adams. So Nora was like, I don't want to watch the second half of Naked and Afraid XL Clothed and Opinionated. 
And I was like, let's watch John Adams. And Linda was in the room, and she was like, I think it's, it's, it's not appropriate for Nora. And I was like, what do you mean? And she checked. She has this app that tells her the age that, you know, is something is appropriate or not. And, uh, you know, I grew up, and I wasn't allowed to watch anything as a kid. And all of my friends watched whatever they want, and I wasn't allowed to watch anything. And I think it made me more sheltered. So I try to let Nora watch, like, older stuff because I feel like she'll get broken in and she'll be more sophisticated. But Linda's very, very, very strict about her not being able to watch stuff that isn't in the correct age bracket on this fucking stupid website. So they said John Adams is not appropriate for under 14. And I was like, come on, it's, it's about the American Revolution. How bad could it possibly be? But it said that they had full frontal nudity and, and, uh, and a lot of musket fire. And Nora was like, I don't want to watch that. And, um, and I got very frustrated, but I didn't say anything. I was trying, you know, lately I've been fighting with everybody. And my sponsor's like, Dave, you got to keep your mouth shut. So I'm like trying to keep my mouth shut. And it's never easy for me to keep my mouth shut. It's just, it's the hardest thing in the world. So when Nora decides she doesn't want to watch John Adams and she doesn't want to watch Naked and Afraid XL Clothed and Opinionated second episode, she asks me to watch The Simpsons. And for some reason, I like went crazy. And obviously I love The Simpsons. But I said, no, we're not watching The Simpsons. And like she started crying and, uh, and all hell broke loose. And that's when I realized that I was totally out of sorts, like that I am like an ogre in the house. Like it's been building up. Like I've been quick to anger and it, and it came out in this weird TV deciding moment. So the next morning I went to the meeting, I realized I need to go to meetings and I need to like get out of this problem because I don't want to be a dick. I don't want to be that guy who's in recovery and, and like hangs his hat on having time but then at the same time isn't flexible, isn't happy, joyous, and free, isn't, you know, a good father. I mean, I know I'm a good father, but if I keep going this way, I'm going to be a dick. So I went to the meeting, and it was, it was like this great reminder that I need program. I don't like to, to preach program. I don't like to fucking be like a weird cult member. But for me, I need to remember that uh, me being self-centered and me being selfish and me just considering myself is going to result in me being miserable and my family being miserable, that I need um, spirituality. You know, I need to make other people happy, and, and that way I can be happy. And I went to the meeting, and I was reminded of this, and it was a great thing, and that's like the answer. So I'm doubling down on my program and I'm doubling down on my spirituality and I'm trying not to be a dick. I took Nora and her friends for ice cream tonight. It was great. Uh, but I did yell at them when they ran upstairs and almost woke up Susan. So it's progress, not perfection, I think. And when we went, when I went to the meeting, there's a guy at the meeting who, um, just this amazing guy. He, he, he calls himself, or he doesn't call himself this, but the group calls him Smiling Joe. And he has 25 years, and there's just something about him that I always thought was super special. And I also knew that he was uh, a drug addict, and I always wanted him to come on Dopey, and I wanted to do something different this week. So straight from Strong Island, uh, we have Smiling Joe. Here we go. So it was like two years ago, approximately, and my friend Chris had just died, and I wasn't going to meetings. And I turned up at Corey Beach. 
and I think I shared, my name's Dave, uh, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic, you know, and I did my stupid spiel, and I, and I talked about my friend dying, and I mentioned that I had been a, a heroin addict. And I sat there, and I felt a little bit uncomfortable. And then this man shared, and he looked at me, and you disclosed a little bit about your story. You mentioned that you had, you had done everything from alcohol to drugs to heroin to coke and everything in between. And, uh, and his name is Joe, and everyone called him Smiling Joe. And I was like, he's a, amazing, he's a, a major pillar in this community uh, where I live. And just an amazing man to listen to whenever I get to go to the meeting. So welcome to Dopey Joe. Smiling Joe on Dopey. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Okay, you just want me to start my story? I, I mean, I just want you to know, first of all, that like every time I get to go to the meeting, I love to hear you talk. It's, uh, it's amazing. And I, you know I'm not the only one, you know? As funny as that is, I hear it all the time, and it still like surprises me. Why? I guess my old self-image. It's way down in there that, you know, uh, as a kid I grew up with an internal feeling that I'm no good, you know. And it stays with you. And so. it stays with me. And even though you're like, I mean, when did they come up with Smiling Joe? When I got sober, they, 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 they had switched my name in Mastic. I'd been in meetings for a long time, didn't stay sober. They, uh, my nickname then was Ma uh, Methadone Joe. <laughs> and the woman that gave me the, the name, Methadone Joe, she's dead, you know. And we laughed about everything and didn't follow any direction. But And uh, when I got sober, I started to glow, uh, you know. And they changed my name to Smiling Joe. I started to smile everywhere. That's amazing. And... Uh, and Anybody at the, at the meeting that we go to, even people with time, when they, when they share about people in the meeting, they always point to you in the middle of the share. So, like, like you're an elder of the community, and how much time do you have? 25 years next week. Twenty. So it's, it's apropos that you're on Dopey this week because it's your fucking anniversary next week. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And you say you were raised uh, with low self-esteem... I'll tell you what, what the, the foundation of the insanity, you know. Up till around three years old, everything was pretty normal in my house. My mother got uh, a rare blood disease, which turned into a mental illness, schizophrenia, a rare schizophrenia, and violent scream nonstop. And so it was, that, was, that was home, you know. And, uh, and I was never afraid of her, but I... I Inside myself, something changed. You know, I was, I was just, uh, I was fearful. Not of my mother. I, was shame, I felt shame, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, and I, I just, felt, I started to have a fear. What do yeah. you think, that if, the, if the fear wasn't from your mom, what do you think the fear was from? Well, chemically, maybe, you know. I, I, I diet, you know, I was basically unsupervised, you know, she was in mental hospitals for a couple of years, you know, so, so uh, I was on, I had to figure things out for myself. I was five, going to school, and... Uh, Where'd you grow up? In, uh, well, I was born in Brooklyn, and went to school in Queens, then we went back to Brooklyn, we moved around. We had to move because she, the cops were at the house, they, she was, it's, it's hard to describe what it was like, you know, 
Uh, and uh, so I was very mixed up. I prayed incessantly for, for, for the screaming to stop and, and the attacks. On, she used to attack my father with a knife, you know. And uh, no, like I said, I wasn't afraid of her. I was afraid that she was going to stab my father in the middle of the night, you know. And uh, so I, I had that uncomfortability inside everywhere I went. I prayed to God. My God at that time was, doesn't matter. I prayed incessantly, and it didn't change. And then God was out. Because it didn't do, didn't do the trick, and you're well, like, this it, can't work. It, it didn't solve this. Right. You know, my, my vibration, my, my fear didn't solve anything for me. So I rejected the Catholic Church. I rejected the, the teachers. I rejected everybody. You know, you were on your own. I'm on my own. I'm six and I'm pissed. <laughs> and that's the, that was the foundation. That was the start. That was the start uh, uh, because once I closed any instructions, I wasn't teachable. And it, would, and, and it would take you 30 some odd years to, to open back up. Yeah. So you shut down at six. Yeah. And, uh, and you just said no to everything. And, and wonderful people came to try and help me along the way. Even the police were nice to me because they came to my house. They took my mother away in straight jackets. They knew what was going on, you know. And they knew you were an innocent little boy. I was a little kid. But I was, you know, growing not so innocent, you know. I was, uh, uh, you know, I just took, if I needed something, I stole it. You know, in stores, I was stealing by six, seven years old. I was in Woolworth stealing things, you know. I was doing what an unsupervised kid does. He does what he what he comes up with. <laughs> what he wants. What, like, yeah. if you wanted something, you took it. You could get away with it. You learn how to get by. Learn how to get by. Learn how to survive. And uh, cut my own path. And But but I was... Uh, the more I did those things, the more uncomfortable I felt. Because you knew that something was wrong. Well, yeah, because the, cause the cops are chasing me and uh, I, I, the two officers are coming and uh, they're taking my father to court because he thinks I'm in, I got left back in the fifth grade, the sixth grade, and the seventh grade. You often share at the meetings about your dad, yeah. like that your dad always believed in you and your yeah. dad always like saw the best in you. How did he deal with you in, in, in like pre-using when, when you started going the wrong way? Well, he was, he used to just stay out of the house. He worked all day, he, you know, put a house over our heads, you know, a roof over our heads and food in the house. And uh, and he would go out after work. Cause he had to get away from my mother. She was savage. She was crazy, you know. And, uh, and man, I don't know, and he had his club. So he was, he was out in the day and he was... Out at night. Out at night. <laughs> right. You know, and, uh, and, and... I had to figure out my life, you know, and uh, I drifted into the streets, you know. I wandered around. I was sexually abused around eight years old, nine years Because when everybody was in school, I'm walking through, through, through New York, you know, wherever a kid could go, you know. But I always say, by the time I was sexually abused, I was already so crazy, you know, Holly Manning. Right. You know, like some people, that ruins their life. But your life was already ruined. It was already ruined. It was just a bad day. Right. Okay, I won't do that again. You know, you know. Uh, so uh, the path that I ended up on, I was always ending somewhere because I was drifting. You know, uh, I should be in school. Like I said, I got left back in the fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and I finally uh, the courts took my father to court because I was unmanageable. They were going to take me away from the family. 
So I met the judge offered a deal. He said, just go to school. Show, we'll even pick you up, you know? Were you just like, I'm going to stay, I'm going to do this because I don't want to leave my house. I don't want to leave my family, even though your mom was crazy and your dad was gone. Well, you know what it is? If I made a promise to anyone, I kept it. I just didn't promise anybody, but I promised the judge I would do that. So you did. So I did it. And, and to be tested by the devil, the most gorgeous girl in the school, <laughs> the very next day that I come back to school, she says, why don't you stay home? We'll take, take some pills. We'll hang out, you and me. Gorgeous. Drop dead gorgeous. I says, mother. <laughs> and you, but you know what? I kept my promise to the judge. When did drugs start to show up then? Uh, or alcohol? What came first? Alcohol, uh, around, I guess, around 11, you know, smoking cigarettes by then and hanging out and uh, shining shoes. Well, that came a couple of years later, shining shoes. But I would drink wine, you know, 50 cents a quart. Uh, and uh, I would do anything anybody asked me to. Try this. Try it. You know, I didn't want to be a junkie yet. But I remember when I when that book came out, Panic in Needle Park. Sure. You know, Al Pacino's first movie. Yeah. yeah. I I saw that and I said, "That's me." That's you saw me. yourself oh, in yeah. that character. I, I even had the girlfriend look just like that later on. I made it all come true. I says, I just identified with the darkness of the light of life. You know, I think it was even a black and white movie. That outlaw shit. Just like dark. down and out. Down outlaw. dark. Yeah. I, I stayed away from, my whole family, uh, on both sides of my family, there's no drug addicts, no alcoholics. Yeah, me neither. And, but I stayed away from that nice, I didn't like nice houses with the, with the Italians, they had all the, the furniture covered in plastic and everything. And I says, I wouldn't eat there. Yeah? <laughs> I'd rather eat on the floor. Yeah. Uh, so I was uncomfortable about healthy people. I really was, you know. We talk about that at meetings sometimes. I, I remember, like, we, you and I both yeah. talked about that, like rejecting wellness and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sick and, uh, and wellness hurt. Happy, happy, you know, happy hurt. You're, like, hiding from the light like a vampire. Like a vampire. So yeah. you're a teenager. You're drawn to this dark side. And, and what, what did your life become like then? Like, because that's when you're starting to be... You know, a young adult, especially back in those days, a teenager was way older than a teenager is now kind of thing. Well, what it was, you know, I started to, uh, again, my focus point, the highlight of the week would be to have two quarts of beer with my best friend. You know, so we would, uh, around 13, we hooked up. I had two best friends. One became a cop. One was like me. And uh, our highlight of the week was to somehow get a couple quarts of beer and go sit on a parkway and and, uh, and maybe get some glue and, and, sniff some glue. and sniff some glue and have some hallucinations, you know? Uh, no hopes, no for me, no hopes, no dreams, no no future. You know, like kids, I want to go up and be uh, something. I, I didn't want to, I never had that, that, that thinking at all. It wasn't part of my repertoire. My thinking was today, at this day, I had the day at a time, but I, I just wanted to drink and drug a day at a time forever. You know, everything else was secondary. So, so I did that for a bunch of years. I just drank. You know, in the 60s, I was mostly just beer, shine shoes in the airport. I wasn't lazy, broke concrete, took the money, went to the World's Fair, got two quarts of beer. You know, that was, that was always the payoff. So where are we at at this point? You're, you're drinking with your buddy, you're, you're sniffing glue, and it's... Right, I, I, I'm... Uh, it's, cla- it's a classic American motif. 
drinking beer and sniffing glue on the on the freeway in Queens. Right. You're definitely not the first, right? It's no, no, I would no. There was a whole a whole slew of my generation doing these things. You know, like uh, we grew up in the fifties, where the world was like uh, father knows best. You know, you kind of expected that kind of life. And, and in the sixties, everybody knew every, that was all bullshit. <laughs> Right, you know, and now everybody's starting to doubt everything, and I'm just like a mess. Of a, the whole population's a mess. The teenage, and I'm a, the, at the bottom of the mess. Were you into like rock and roll and all that stuff? <laughs> yes, but my money went to drugs and alcohol. I didn't buy records. I bought a couple records, you know, uh, but uh, my money went to drugs and alcohol. That's where it always went, you know. I mean, at the time, it was just alcohol. I didn't have much money, but it went to alcohol, and uh, I stole my clothes. I used to like to do that, <laughs> you know. Uh, like uh, stealing was a whole part of my upbringing, childhood, Brooklyn, you know, outlaws, greaser yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, every, all all the rest of my family and friends they outgrew it. They grew up. I didn't. Was it a thrill as well as yeah. survival? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And it's like you're entitled to it. It's like you can take what you want, kind of thing. Yeah, for. for, for, for my brain didn't work very, you know, I didn't think things through. You know, it was an emotion, you do it. Emotion to do it, you know, avoid the consequences as best you can, so. Uh, and that's how I operated. I, I, I didn't have clarity of thought in anything I did, except, you know, a, a concrete. Uh, so, I, yeah, I was just uh, like an automatic pilot, a survival mode. Survival. I had no plan because I was in the survival mode. Leaving my house, I stayed out of my house as much as I could and go back. And to stay as, stay as happy as you could be, as which could. would mean have as much alcohol as you could have. Or, or yeah, you... I wasn't even... My laughing was that, that, uh, it, that, that black humor, you know, when you have such tragedy in your life, what are you going to do, die with it or laugh about it? And, and you develop a black humor. Sure. You know, my best friend, he had... That black humor, both of my friends, you know, so so that was it. That's it. We laughed. We were insane, though. That was the idea behind this whole podcast: was to laugh at the dumbest stuff we had done, and laugh at the danger, and laugh that, at the hopelessness. Why your whole world is dying, or died? Yeah, our whole world yeah. was was done, and we were like, we're going to do this and laugh about it. Yeah. So I can relate to what you're saying, and, and, and you know, and, and and it took me years in recovery to mellow it down because I got to be careful with the black humor. You know, because some people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, how could you laugh at that? Like, I used to laugh at my mother's mental illness. Me and my father, we made jokes about it. It was so painful, but we made jokes about it. We made jokes about my heroin addiction, you know? I used to call, when I'd get arrested, I'd get to the arrest later, when I'd go to Rikers Island, he, he'd call it Pleasure Island. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Uh, so anyway... Uh, the, the way the 60s go, yeah, with all the uh, marches and the world's topsy-turvy. Civil rights. Civil rights, the whole rock world. Rock and roll, Everything rights. is questioned. Right. Everything is questioned. Right. So, you know, in that environment, uh, anyway, not that I, like I said, I saw myself as Al Pacino, but I didn't have a plan to get there yet. And, you know, because I was one of the last guys, and now I got to tell you, now my Queens neighborhood, where I grew up, the good fellows were up the block, you know, and the Gaudis, they weren't even meeting yet, but that was the neighborhood, you know, and, uh, and I, so, so, and the drug addicts in the middle, you know, you just have, like, where's your role models? 
<laughs> you can be the, a, a criminal, a gangster, or a junkie. Yeah. Those are your choices. You know. You know. So, so I, I just I, I gravitated to to the to the to the streets. I didn't. I, I wasn't attracted to the to the wise guys. I was just wasn't attracted to that life. I so you know saw saw them in a different light. I didn't see them in a a good light. You didn't see it as exciting or romantic. No, no. I I. My, I knew about it, you know, and I, but, but, uh, so anyway, so I'm aimless, I'm 14, 15, I quit school at 15, I'm only in, in, in ninth grade I'm at 15, you know, because I left back three times, so I quit right away, it was racial violence, it was, you know, it was, it was, a mess. It was not a fun experience, so I quit, and, uh, and I get, I get a job, Manhattan, Manhattan at, at 16 years old is like, wow, you know? And, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I worked for a while, drank, shopped, I didn't steal. Because you were making money. What were you yeah. doing in Manhattan? Uh, I was, at that time, my first job was for R.H. Donnelly, World of Beauty Club in the Yellow Pages. Okay. And we, I used to steal money from the mail, you know? And, and one day we went to the bar, the whole mail room, and we never came back. And, you know, nobody got any mail, <laughs> you know, because that's how, how it would be. So a- after that job, I, uh, you know, I dressed nice for a little while. I looked healthy for a while, and the, and the, the whole mod movement was coming in, you know. And, and I tell people, I says, well, people don't realize, I says, that all in the 60s, the colors, people started to wear colors, you know. In the 50s, everybody wore p- black, white, and gray. And I said, you know why that is? Because TV in the fifties was black, white, gray. They wanted to look like TV look. And then the color, color, color TVs came out, and everybody dressed in colors. Wow, <laughs> must have been amazing that oh, the world changed that oh, much. It was a fantastic time. The Beatles were like just like blowing the world away. Rolling Stones, uh, the yeah, whole Rolling Stones, because the change in music from the fifties to the sixties was just, and it would change every six months, you know. So I'm like grooving along with all these changes, you know. I, and, uh, and and I'm I'm adding new drugs with each change, you know. So like I said, exclusively beer drinker, the glue, uh, and the glue stopped. That was just a fit. The beer went on, and uh, and then uh, in the in the sixty late sixties sixty seven, the uh, the psychedelics started to, to come around. You, you know, started to take like LSD. Oh uh, yeah, did LSD. You had, Crazy trips, you know, uh, and uh, around the city. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I got top of Kennedy. I put on the roof with the acid. Woo! So you 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 snuck up to the roof of, of JFK oh, Airport yeah. on acid. We, yeah, we knew every every inch of JFK because we shine shoes there. Right. We used to steal alcohol, and <laughs> so we and the cops knew us. <laughs> so yeah, we used to go on the roof and sniff and uh, do the uh, acid, and that, you know that was a trip. And, and and then uh, watching the planes take off oh, and land yeah. on the fucking acid is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sure kids are still doing that. Someplace. Oh yeah. Not on the roof of JFK though. I bet. No, no. But They're probably like lying outside of MacArthur Field and watching the planes take off and land, Look tripping at these out. Wheels. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, you know, like I say, I could look like a. Uh, nobody could. I think the cops knew how sick I was. They were always kind to me. They say, don't you see what's happening, kid? You're doing this. You're going to take these pills. Then you're going to shoot the dope, you know. And I say, oh, no, no, no. 
with the pot, first with the pot. Now, come on. You go, yeah, you're smoking pot, you're drinking, you're 14. Next, you're going to start taking psychedelics. Then you're going to take pills. You know, and he spelled all out what I'm going to do. And be my friend and laugh. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> and then you're like, wait a sec, what did he say? And then you have to go <laughs> find what he mentioned. And you don't even realize you're following the plan that exactly. he laid out. Right, right along, right along, you know? And uh, so I did the, the big change, you know, like when I was still doing the psychedelics, the speed, and uh, it was still some fun. Well, those laugh. classic late 60s and those late 60s drugs, you know. The electric circus, you know, which, which later became an NA program. <laughs> Did it really? Yeah. It was a headquarters. Oh, yeah, on St. Mark's Yeah. Yeah, of that course. That used to be electric yeah. circus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rubber room. I was in that rubber room, and I still, still know the girl who lives in Florida. We were in that rubber room together. And then it became the headquarters of Narcotics Anonymous. Later. That's, and yeah. it was scary, too. I used to walk by there. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, I, 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 we walked the village, and it was all new and all exciting. But it, but it really wore out fast, you know, uh, for me. Uh, it was too much, right? Uh, well, it was a pattern that a lot of people ended up following with the, uh, with the crack, act, you know. Uh, Coke and... Coke, crack, and then a lot of times they end up on heroin, you know, because now they need something that, yeah. Well, back then it was like speed, I think. It was right? speed. Yeah. There was no cocaine. There was no cocaine in the streets, you know? Until like the late 70s, yeah. late 70s yeah. or something. Yeah, But it was speed, it was bad acid, it was the those pills, you know. Yeah, and there was the rock and roll music, which was still new, you know? Uh, it was exciting. It was like... It, it was exciting. It was before the music industry really like took over and became corporate. It was like kids yeah. with ideas and fun and people were... It was wild. Still. It was wild. It was not like uh, profitable in the way it became profitable, like the way that people figured out how to make it this very, very buttoned-up business. It was wild. It was, it was free. It was like a whole generation that knew where we where we came from, the fifties environment with the military complex and blah 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 blah. And America's good, you know, because that's what we grew up on. You trust your government. You trust your police. You trust, you trust. America's good. That's how I grew up. It was on every TV show, every movie, you know. And then you, you know, get in the 60s and you end up not trusting anybody. <laughs> you know, you start getting some real news. Uh, not that I was a, I, you know, I wasn't a protester. I was, I, ultimately, I didn't care about anything but getting high. That was, that was it, you know. Uh, I didn't join any marches, you know. Uh, once I, and then, you know, so in my neighborhood, the heroin came around, late 60s. Vietnam kind of stuff, right? It all came out of there. Yeah, yeah. It came around, it, like I said, it was something that was remote. Like, my first junkie I met was, I was about 12, this guy Tiny, and I met him in Brooklyn, they said, he's a junkie, and, you know, and that was the first one I knew. You know, he was 18, I was 12, something like that. And, uh, were you attracted to it when you first saw no, it, or were no, you like, this is scary? No, I watched him like tear apart his aunt and his mother for, the, for his money, and so it wasn't a pleasant thing I was watching, but uh, I didn't have any feelings towards it one way or the other, you know? I, I didn't say, oh, I can't wait to do that. I had no idea what it was going to feel like, you know? As, as I progressed along, you know, the psychedelics... And then they start taking the two and alls and second alls, you know. And then I, uh, I started to inject the two and alls and second alls. How did you get into that? How did you get into using the needles? Uh, 
it just kind of like popped up the opportunity. I mean, the, the first heroin shot was my best friend's idea. He said, "Let's shoot heroin." You know? How old were you? I think seventeen. You know, uh, he said, Let, "I think he said, let's shoot heroin." Okay. You know, I knew guys that were doing it, and we hooked up. And I think the first time I actually did it, they they, they gave me a water shot. <laughs> you know, because when I got a when I got the real deal. Uh, it was like, I, I tell people, I said, the best way I can describe it, I said, it felt like kissing God. Mm. I, I said, that's what it felt like to me. Not everybody has that experience. It's like without alcohol, you know, not everybody has the same experience. That's why everybody doesn't get addicted to heroin. You know, First time I did heroin, it was bad. I mean, I got, I got destroyed, you know. I got destroyed to the point where I was just vomiting all night, you right. know. Right. And, um... And I got really high, but almost uncomfortably, like so high, like, like too high. Like scary high. Yeah. Like, like where's the end? It, it, there was no, it was like I was gone. And I, I, I woke up in the morning with some with, with a girl that I didn't, you know, that I, w- I shouldn't have been with. And and I was like covered in vomit. I don't think anything fun had happened. It was like pretty, <laughs> it, was pretty like it was pretty gross. But like, and I didn't touch it again for a long time. It took me a little while to, to, to feel that feeling of like, yeah. Of, of of love of it. When you did yeah. it the first time, you felt that love the first time. It was the second time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I still remember to this day, I remember just listening to uh, Chambers Brothers, Time. Yes. Time and, has come and today. And up as, it, as that's going. And I'm fading out. Time. Time. I said, I, said, I said to my friend, my best friend, I said, Eddie, I'm in trouble. Really? And he says, why I said, I love it. I said, if Marilyn Monroe was here and this dope was here, I'm taking the dope. I said, I'm in trouble. You knew it, right? I knew. Right. I, I knew. I, and I should tell the cops. I should say, if you knew what this did, because I had no peace in my life. I never slept with the home front. I was always on the run. And I, and I should tell the cops who knew me. I should say, if you knew what this did for me, you'd understand why I'd do it. You know? And there was nothing else that I could get that relief. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I didn't grow up in a in a situation like that. I had my own situation, but I had the exact same piece from, yeah. from dope. I had the exact same feeling like I was scared of it at first, and I didn't have any money, and I didn't have a way to do it. So I was like, I'm going to do this as little as I can. And once I, I felt like I had some money, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself to it because I want to feel like this every day, right. you know? Um, at what point, like, you did it and you knew what it was and you're a kid, how do you keep up with it? Uh, well, we had no money, so I would go to my friend's house, uh, Eddie, and, and he, he wants to be caught in habits, you know? And I, I'd go to his house and I'd say, yeah. and he'd be in bed, ah, you know, withdrawing. He uh, I said, Eddie, get the hell up. He says, I says, somewhere out there is our dope and the money to get it. I said, they ain't delivering. Get up. <laughs> and we would go out and we would somehow, every day for two years, every day, get up, Eddie. We're going to steal my father's car. <laughs> credit cards. Uh, we were, I was on the cutting edge of the credit cards, 1968. Back in that day, they used to uh, 
they, they initiated Master, MasterCard, the first one. And uh, so one came to my house. And, and I looked at it and said, oh, look at that. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we had a stolen credit card for a little while we were using. And then this one came to my house and my father's name on it. And I, I found out family members could use it. So I took the card. It came in the mail. And we would go to Macy's, May's department store. I'd go upstairs and buy a gift certificate and go downstairs and buy something for $3 and get the cash. And, and I kept doing it, thousands and thousands of dollars. So one day... So that just kept you on dope in, in oh, itself, yeah. this credit card. That, that was, yeah, one of the things. We, you just didn't pay the bill. No, the police came to the house. Detectives came to the house. And, and the president... Of May's, of May's department stores. Those are the days, right? So I when come, the president of the store yeah. comes to the yeah. house. Well, it was so new. They came to the house, and they said, technically, it was an unsolicited card. My father didn't ask for the card, so he wasn't responsible. Was his name on it? Yeah, okay. but he didn't ask for it. It was an unsolicited active card. And, uh, and they said, we really can't prosecute him and my father, you know. And... Technically, he's responsible. It was like a mishmash. And they said, listen, we're going to squash the whole thing. Just don't tell anybody. But this happened. This this worked out for you. (laughs) Because they mailed out like a million cards. That's so funny. (laughs) And that's the beginning of of knowing what they can't do with credit cards. And also, like, did did anyone have any idea of where you were at? Did your dad have any idea of where you were at? With With that Yeah. Well, he, he... at that, by that time, yeah, he, he knew where I was at when uh, I got arrested for possession. You know, I was going down to uh, Bed-Stuyvesant area. I'm 18 years old. I'm a kid. I believe, I believe me, I was a young-looking 18-year-old kid, you know? I can sort of imagine it in my head. And, and uh, so one day, we buy our dope, we do our dope, and this guy, Tony, says, I lost, I lost a bag in the car. He was a notorious liar. <laughs> we all said, get the fuck, you're full of shit, you son of a bitch, blah, blah, blah. So next day, I got to get my next day's heroin. Me and my friend, best friend, were driving down in, in the car, stole from my father. <laughs> and uh, on the way down, they used to literally, back in the late 60s, when this heroin hit New York City, people don't realize what an epidemic it was in the late 60s, you know? And there was no programs. No. You know? And uh, so they used to literally, like, stop white guys on the way to, to black neighborhoods or Spanish neighborhoods. Because so, all the white guys from Queens would be going... To, they were figuring it out then. Well, there was one road. We all went down. It was like a wagon train. <laughs> so so they would set up stops, you know, like uh, in, like by Highland Park. They would literally just stop every... Kid, every white kid that every, was on his way every, to cop. Yeah, right. It was, and it was like obvious that the white couple just <laughs> looked like junkies, <laughs> you know. Uh, so they stopped me in one of those on the way to uh, Pitkin Avenue down there, 75th Precinct, which my friends both were cops there. <laughs> and, uh, and so the cop, you know, he, he says, license. I don't think I even had a license. And he said, uh, search the car. He found the pig. He, he found, found Tony's bag. He found Tony's bag. Oh, I my said, God. You could have just had Tony's back. I, 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 said to, to I said to the cop, I said, I didn't know it was there. I, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> that is the worst. That's a funny story. And I'll tell you, it gets funnier. So he says, you know, okay, he was a nice cop. You know, I always get along with cops. And, and he says, listen, kid, I, I think I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to arrest you. He says, maybe that'll help you, you know. 
he, so he says, so he takes me to the precinct, and, and, he's, and he puts me in the bullpen. And you were sick in the bullpen, though, right? Did you get sick in there, or did you get out? Oh, I, I, no, I was, uh, I don't remember being sick that night, so I must have had something earlier in the day. I wasn't terribly sick. And I, I, uh, so anyway, what, what that couple of years ends up with, I got a bunch of arrests, you know, uh, funny stories, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to hear it. Yes. Uh, okay. One of the stories is uh, we used to go around, and like I said, the Gotti's Club was over here, and there were fences all over the neighborhood. Uh, I'll tell you, the first funny story is one day we're driving down a block, and I see a loading dock. You know, I see a box on a loading dock. I'm driving the car. I stop. <laughs> I tell my friend, Eddie, Eddie, I says, there's something on the loading dock. Wait here. I get out of the car. I grab it. I pick it up. I run back, I throw it in the car. I don't even know what the hell it is, right? But it's not, not heavy, right? So uh, I said, well, let's see what it is. So we open it up the box. It, it's a whole box of, of like size 50 bloomers, silk bloomers. Underwear. For women. Like that. Gigantic women's Gigantic. underwear. Okay. Right? So I says, okay, how the fuck am I going to sell this shit? So <laughs> I, I go to the fence, you know, and, and uh, he says, yeah, what you got there? I said, yeah. I says, I just, uh, so he opens it up. He takes it out. He goes, "Oh, fucking parachutes!" <laughs> and he bought them. So you you basically came up in like Goodfellas. You know, you're oh, you're running right. around the city. You and Eddie are like the junkie dynamic duo, <laughs> looking for scores wherever yeah. you could find little them. scores, not big scores, just to get over, just just, just to make sure you could get right. what you needed that day or whatever. Right. We weren't looking for profit, cash, jewelry. We were looking for drugs. That's all. We're just every day. Okay, we got an opportunity here. We got an opportunity. And that was the force. <laughs> you know, Do you remember, like, the greatest score that you and Eddie ever came upon? Or, like, do you remember, like, the bloomers is funny, the fucking parachutes. You can imagine the, the wise guys making fun of you. We, with the We never had big cash scores because we didn't plan anything. Just something that worked out right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, or something that worked out terribly wrong. I had, I had a job for... for uh, for a big jeweler. I, I got a temporary job for a big jeweler. I won't say the name. Very big jeweler. Okay. And uh, and, he, and he put me in, in charge of inventory. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you, it's funny. Because it, 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 I, you know, so I'm sitting there counting these diamond rings, right? And, and <laughs> the beginning is already funny. In, in a box, uh -huh. right? A whole pile, loose diamond rings. And, uh, and I write down catalog or something, you know? And I'm saying to myself, I got a box here. They don't know what's in this fucking box till I write it down. I said, oh, that's what I'm doing. I'm telling them what's in the box. That's your job. That's my job. To tell them how many diamond rings right. they have. Right. So, if they, yeah. So now on the way into the facility, you literally got to walk past four detectives. You know. How did they hire you for this job? What do I know? <laughs> uh, so so uh, I went to a temporary agency and they... They needed some help bad because they they couldn't keep track with their diamonds. They needed so so I'm in there and uh, like I said to get in, you, there's four four guards, detectives with the guns. Can't miss them, right? And electric eyes, right? Just show you the nerve I had. Right? So I go in there and I'm doing this for a while and I'm, I'm saying, you don't know what's in here. And those electric eyes, I says, you know what? People come in here with their watches. And with the rings, 
I says, they're not leaving him outside. I says, and the alarm's the electric guy ain't picking up. I says, that electric guy is to pick up a weapon. I says, it's not going to. I said, but I didn't know for sure. This is what I'm theorizing. So I take one. It's the master, the master plan. I take one of the diamond rings and I put it in a cuff. Of your jeans. Yeah. I put it in a cuff. And, and I come downstairs at the end of the day. And I see the guys. I've been, you know, I see them a little. I remember the Dodgers were playing the World Series, and they were listening to the World Series. Hey, who's winning the game? Oh, as I'm inching towards the, the electric eye, and I don't know if the fucking nation go off or not. And you're freaking out, like, well, uh, yeah. What do you do? Would you? What's your plan in your head that if it, if it goes off? I guess yeah. the diamond ring must have found my cover my jeans. All I can say, right. they know I'm full of shit, uh, and but, hope for the best. And hope for the best. Yeah. But I've been walking through this thing. <laughs> yes. And when I get to the other side, I'm like, motherfucker. You know, and you made it. Made it. And then I and then I did it every day. Yeah. You know? How many and you just take like how much is a diamond ring worth? Well, you know what is diamonds are a huge markup. Uh, and I tell you, I felt bad because they were ab- absolutely nice people, the Hasidic Jews sure. that ran this place. They were really nice people. I felt bad about that. Because they trusted me. You know, I didn't like when I when I robbed a bastard. Or a cold corporation, that was one thing. But when, but when I betrayed nice people, it bothered me, you know? And not that it was their money, but, you know, it was so much. I get it. I yeah. get it. And they trusted you. And they and trusted it. me. They, like, they offered me a full-time job. I had to decline it because I would never stop until I got... You knew it would uh, just... it would just Because that must have been the big, the best scam in the history of scams. You're counting me? diamond rings. Yeah. Take one, and then you're you're set for a, for a little bit, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, you know, you take it. Take a, you take a two thousand dollar ring, something that retails for two thousand. Back this back in nineteen seventy, something that retails for two thousand. Their cost is about three hundred, huge markups. So how much is the fence going to give you for the ring? Not much, five hundred. All right, but still, yeah. it's like you get your day's work plus five hundred bucks. You're pretty good on on. I mean, did your habit get out of hand because you were making all the money from the diamonds? Well, in the late sixties. My habit didn't... I never was like a... Uh, Come up to oh, I, I never was like a... Like these guys talking about $400 a day habits. I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, movie stars that... Because there comes a point where you're saturated. You can't... If it's good heroin, you don't feel anymore. Well, lots of these... I mean, I had a habit that got to like... At the end, I got to like a $300 a day habit when I was... I was, I was like managing cats's. And the dope was good sometimes, and sometimes... Well, that's when you spend the money, when the dope tails off. You don't have a choice. Right. You have to that's keep up with it. That's when you spend the money. So you, 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 I'm sure back in 1970, the dope was probably pretty fucking good. It was, you know what... Or was it the same? It was hit and miss. It, it, they have a marketing. They market their dope. With the stamps. Yeah, what they do, I, you know, over the years, I realized they, they, they're very good businessmen. They put a product out on the street, which is... Uh, the word gets around fast, you know, fast. And, and it's got a brand name, Goldfinger in Harlem, or, uh, whatever, you know, uh, 357, Sunday Silence. You know there's a Trump heroin out there now someplace. Uh, uh, probably. I, I don't know for sure. We had, Bat- we had Batman. Right. Uh, uh, so, so what they do is they put out a, a good product, and everybody hears about it. And then as people come, they start cutting down the product. Because they already have their demand. They don't need they, to keep it good. They, nope. And then that, when that wears down, they open up a new product, a new name, or, or, or re-beef that one. Because they don't put out a good product all the time. 
you know? At least that, that's, I've seen that play out a bunch of times. When did, when did it start turning? Like, when did it become... A problem? Yeah. When it started. Right. Oh, right from the get-go. That's all I wanted to do. You know, I did it every day for a couple of years. There was no methadone programs. Uh, it was very hard to get uh, methadone on the street. Back then, it wasn't even called methadone. It was... Uh, what the hell was the name of it? Dolphin. Yeah. Dolphin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were $10 each. They were hard to get. It's not like you could go get one. There was no clinic. No, there was no clinics. They started in my area. I was on one of the first in Manhattan around 1970, you know, something like that. And uh, because I couldn't keep it up. Because in, in, in those couple of years, I had five arrests. You know, I was, uh, the other funny story I was going to say. So one day, like I say, every day I'd wake up and say, Eddie, come on, we got to go find the money in the dope, you know. And uh, so one day I get him. And <laughs> we, we went there to this woman we used to call Senora, an old Italian woman. She used to buy hot stuff. So I, we, and we said, you know, instead of us stealing stuff and trying to sell it, tell us what you want. And we'll get it for you. We'll get it for you. We'll, so we started taking orders. The concierge <laughs> yeah. service for Senora. So we started taking orders. And we had a list. And there was everything on this list. Like a shopping list, basically. Oh, yeah. Paintings. Uh, whatever it was. So, so on... So we're going out to Green Acres, and uh, this other guy, Tony's in the street. He, you know, I was a kind guy, and he says, oh, I'm so sick, blah, blah. Yeah, come on, come on, get in the car. I'll get enough for all of us. <laughs> so we go out to, to the mall, and I get the list. And we're going from this store to that store, checking off the list, going up the car, checking off the list. So uh, the last thing on the list, there's one more thing, a girdle. A girdle. A size... I don't know, big fucking girdle. Uh-huh. So I says, oh, stop the car. I'll get the girdle. So I go in, into the store. They're waiting in the car. <laughs> all full of shit, all the stuff we stole already. I go, so I go into the woman's department. I'm about 120 pounds in the woman's department. And I find a girdle. And I steal the girdle. I come out to... Did to, you put it on to steal it? No. How'd so, you do it? I just stuck it under my clothes and walked out and... So I, I, I come out to the car and surrounded by cop cars. Oh, God. So I'm seeing that. Uh, this is my, you know, my father's car I stole. You know, it's my best friend's in there. And the cops got them, but they ain't got me. You know, I could walk away. But then they're going to arrest my best friend. And, and it will go back to your dad, too. Oh, yes. So I went over to the car. And, and I, the cop says, it's your car? I said, yeah, it's my car. Uh, so he, he said to my best friend, the other guy, my office, his car, and he's got all the stolen goods in it. He says, uh, they went into the store, and they they got a store detective to say they didn't have nobody, they, all that stolen stuff that was in the car, they they had nobody say they saw or stole it. So they... They, they couldn't prove it was your it, stolen right. goods. So... But they got one guy who saw me took the girdle. Oh, God. He says he saw me. He didn't see me. He, he, I would have known if there was another man in a fucking woman's department. Yes. But he said he saw me because he knew if he said he saw me, they'll arrest me. So they arrest me and they let my friends go. And the car. And they said to my friend, they says, uh, you want the good? You want you want everything? No, 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 no. We don't want nothing. He's like, I ran away. <laughs> and uh, they, so they took me to, to, to jail. And my best friend had the balls to go home and tell my father, because he was like that, you know. So, yeah, he went home. My father loved him. You know, he was the only junkie allowed in my house. And, and, and he says, uh, 
they arrested Joe and, you know, he's in jail over there at uh, Hempstead. So uh, I go to jail. But I go to court. Let me, let me say, yeah, I go to court. You know, they put you in the holding cell, then they send you to court. So they put me in front of the judge. My brother comes down. Right? He's five years older than me. And I'm, I'm sick, you know, and uh, I have a seizure. Right in front, the judge says to me, released in your own reconnaissance, right? I'm like, oh. Thank God. But I go right into a seizure. In front of the in judge. In front of the judge, on the floor, pounding my face. My brother's panicking. My brother's saying, He's going to die. Do something with him. Do something. The judge says, I can't. He says, he's released. He, you take him. My brother says, I can't take him. What am I taking him? Popping like a flounder. Yeah? So I wake up. Handcuffed to a radiator. Oh, God. So what did they do with you? They let you go from there? No. 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 They they they, they put me in jail. But if they release you and you have a seizure, it, how do you... It, it took me back. I right. guess he... I don't know what the judge did on the paperwork, but... So that I could be treated in the infirmary, right? You know, because you needed to be anti-seizure, or whatever. Right? Yeah. So, so that that's how that. So I wake up in jail. I'm kicking my heroin. I'm in jail, and uh, I'm the only white guy. It's a nasty time to be the only white guy in 1970. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, that's when we had all the riots like you have it now, and the Watts riots in L.A., yeah, in New York. So it was a scary place, but you know, I was surviving in there, and. Uh, so I, I think I was in there a couple of weeks, and they were going to release me, right? So I go out, you know. Oh, and right before I get released, this big black guy like like Mike Tyson, he says, I hate fucking white guys. Yeah, I'm kicking your ass tonight, you know? I said, oh, it's going to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, so uh, they call me, and they pack, they tell me, pack up, you know? So Because you're getting out. Right. And this guy wants to kill you or whatever. Right, that night. That night, but I don't come back. But what happens, I don't get out either. Oh, God. As I'm, as I'm ready to go, two detectives pop up and put handcuffs on me, and, and they wanted me for warrants. I forget what for. They took me to Rikers Island. I thought I just came from a bad place. At, at Rikers Island in 1970. Oh. And it was scary. A guy hung himself. First night in there, a guy hung himself. I seen rapes in there. I seen stabbings. It was a zoo. Right. It was, a, and they come in with the riot gear like Batman. It was crazy. It was a mess. Scary stuff. My one of my best friends went to Rikers, and he's he, the first night he was there, he saw somebody die. Also, it was, yeah, it was just scary, like, scary. End of the world stuff. Jungle, the uh, jungle. You know, Lord, I, and I knew if I stayed in here too long, things ain't gonna go well. You know, it's gonna change me for life. You know, you don't want to kill somebody. Someone's going to kill me, rape me. Who the fuck, you know? Right. Something terrible. Yeah. I stayed there a couple of weeks before I got out. But I never asked my father to get me out. How'd you get out then? Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, quite remember. I think they ended up releasing. My father got me a, a good lawyer. He was a prosecutor for the city. My father had connections. He didn't, you know, use, I didn't ask for nothing. You know, but he got me out of there. Some, the, the guy had the charges. It wasn't major stuff. I don't even remember what it was. It was know? the girdle. Yeah. No, that was out in Oh, Nassau. no, then there was the warrants. That, some that was weird, in Nassau. Some weird warrants. Yeah, that I show But up. you were always running game all over the place, always. so they, must, they well, must have known. Yeah. You know, like I said, I wasn't a serious offender. I wasn't a violent no, guy. No, you were a junkie who stole to get by. And, yeah. And, you know, when you're constantly 
doing crime, even if it's copping, you're going to get picked right. up. You know, I yeah. mean, I used to cop every day, and eventually I would get picked sweep, up. Sweep, get picked up at a sweep or Exactly, whatever. Um, I love the relationship of you and Eddie. It's a classic uh, addict thing. Like, when you're lucky enough to have a friend to use with, it turns some of the worst things we do into these kind of almost innocent memories because the friendship was golden. Well, we were, we were together every single day from the time we met. At 13 to, to, uh, to our 20s, you know, his, his family was uh, raving alcoholics. He had a younger brother who idolized me, thought I was like the Fonz. Right. <laughs> you know? And uh, we were very close. Very, we, uh, and, and, and it was exciting and Outlawish, you know. I mean, you were living the life. Yeah, you know, we're not, we don't. There's no place for us. He had no hopes and dreams either. So we. Your saw, hopes and dreams were scoring every day and staying high and and, and making and, it through. Yeah, and you yeah. did that. Yeah, until you didn't. Yeah, well, by by the time uh, we were twenty, uh, we, we were both burnt out pretty bad. You know, I mean, physically burnt out. You know, I was 120 pounds and mess. Yeah, and heroin was not easy to get in 69, 70. Uh, it wasn't easy to get. You know, it was very clandestine. You have to meet people in hallways. You got to be introduced by somebody. You know, you just couldn't walk up to a door like you could in the 70s when it opened up like a... Right, when, they, when they're dropping the bucket and they're dropping right. the dope. No, there was, there was, was none, none of that. that. Right. No, you, so it was very clandestine. You had to go to, to mostly a black neighborhood. It wasn't even... It was in the Hispanic neighborhoods, but the whites didn't know it, you know? Uh, so we were going to the black neighbors. Now, if you're white and you're going to Harlem, you stand out like a sore thumb. And the only people that are happy to see you are the people that are going to make the money off of you. Well, it, it, the cops, they know what you're there for. The takeover, you always had to worry about the takeoff artists, you know, and jump out of the alleys. Because they're going to get the money. Right, cause so, so it's really like another scary situation, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, but, uh, so anyway, what happens is I'm, I get on a methadone program, you know, uh, and my, my best friend, he's still shooting some dope, you know, and getting in trouble. And uh, I get on the methadone program, and it mellows me out. For a little while, I try to shoot my heroin over the methadone. It's a waste of money. Yeah. You know, I just mm-hmm. keep doing it, and it's a waste of money. And I, I hook up with a beautiful girl. She wanted to save me. <laughs> and uh, we lived in Manhattan, on Park Avenue, in a rent-control apartment in Murray Hill. Nice. <laughs> $130 a month. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, so for a while, I, you know, I calmed way down. I, I, calmed, I stopped the stealing. I didn't have to steal. I had to invest down. I got on welfare. <laughs> you know, I was living large. <laughs> and... Uh, I would still steal our food. I would still, you know, I'd go to Christie's and I'd steal. I, I, I used to dress in blue suede pants and a brown fur coat and go shoplifting. Wow. And you didn't stand out, right? <laughs> Amazing. And I had long hair. Uh, oh, yeah, I laugh. I just, because my brain didn't work. It truly didn't work. It, 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 it just, I, I, I could only see what I needed to do. And do it right. That's where my that was the extent. So so I was with this uh, beautiful girl for for uh, yeah. This story has some twists too. So I, I the first time I meet her father, her fa- father 
it's with the Colombos, you know. And uh, so I go to the house, her house on 75th Street in Queens, and I go to her house. Her father's there, her mother's there, and, and, and their newborn baby, you know. And the father sees me, takes one look at me, goes to his drunk and pulls out a gun and says, get the fucker out of my house. You know, that's the very first time I met him. He said, he just looked at me. He knew that you were no good. <laughs> I, I didn't say anything. Right? So, so he says this to me, and uh, I don't run, and my girlfriend's there. And uh, so he's got the gun. I get in my car. Trying to figure out what the hell to do. He gets in his car, right? So I go down to the conduit. I don't know if you know where Queens is, the conduit. So I go down to the conduit. I make a right. He comes right behind me in his Cadillac. He's chasing me. I say, oh, man. And he's got the gun. <laughs> and and uh, I said, oh, man, this motherfucker, he don't like me. <laughs> so I don't know what it was I said that made him do that. You know, it's probably the suede jacket and the... And <laughs> no, the... I didn't have that okay. on. Uh, and uh, Suede pants. It was something that... Made him, he had a big temper. And so he's chasing me down the conduit, and I see a cop car, right? So I swerve, and I cut off the cop car. And the cop goes, and he goes by, right? Now he sees me do this. He's out on parole. So he knew he couldn't fuck with so, that. So he's thinking, this motherfucker's going to bring the cops back to my house. Not only did I not bring the cops back to his house, I went back to his house by myself. And he's looking at me. This guy's fucking crazy. You know, and his daughter's outside. And he, and he says, if you want to go with him, he says, to the girl, she, she says, he says, you can't come back. So she gets in my car. And that was the end of it. And we took off. Well, no, it's not quite the end of it. <laughs> the end of it for that night. So this guy, he, you know, he's got the street, street, he sees I got the street stuff. I ain't talking, I ain't squealing, and I got, must have some kind of balls to come back to his house to get his daughter. Mm -hmm. So I'm impressing this guy. I'm screwing up his whole head. Right. You know? He's a junk keeper. You know? so, <laughs> so, so we end up, uh, he ends up inviting me over. He likes you. Yeah. yeah it's something he likes. It's something he likes. And uh, he invites me over and we become friends. And he says, I'm going to help. You're going to get off that shit. You know? I said, okay. You know? And uh, so, so he gives me a job in, in a lamp factory. He had a couple of shady businesses, food companies, whatever. He's, and he gives me a job. And his main job is to go around and collect money for the Columbos, you know. So we were in New Jersey one time. And, and uh, I come outside, I still remember that day, because he's sitting in his chair. And he, and he says, uh, you want to take a ride with me to Brooklyn? I says, yeah, all right. So then, he, for whatever reason, he thought about it. And he said, nah, he says, nah, you better not come. He says, you're too nice for that. Because he was a hitter, you know? He says, it, it ain't in for you. I said, okay. I didn't think nothing. I, I go this way, I go that way. And uh, the next day, or that day, later that day, me and his daughter in bed, and we hear it on the news, he got hit. No, that day. That day. When he asked you to go with him. And if you had gone... It was almost he was testing you, like saying, "Can you, you know, can what? you muscle up for this thing? Are you, are you like tough enough to go do this?" Well, he, he knew already I'll do anything, right. but I wasn't tough enough. And you weren't interested in that, and it saved your life. Yeah, yeah, that day. It's amazing. I have a weird question. 
You know when they say in the preamble, constitutionally incapable of being honest, do you think it's to get people to say, like, it's to psych them out or it's just straight up? Like, like the idea, you know what I mean? Like, if you're, if, like when I was on the fence and they say some are constitutionally incapable of being honest, I would be like, I can be honest. It would challenge me. Do you think they put it in there as a challenge or do you think it's just a flat no. statement? No. Just a flat I, statement. I think it's an, a, a true experience. Right. You know, like you or I... I was temporarily incapable, but there are some people who are permanently incapable. Incapable. Yeah. But even them, their lives can get better. Right. Now, when, you know, we're still, like, very early on in your, in your story, when did it get to a point where, like, you knew that things had to change? Way later, you know. How, how did you keep going for so long? And, like, how bad did well, it get? I remember... You know, since I already de- decided that this is what I want to do, heroin, you know, or, or, or not feel, you know. Whatever. And it was her- how long were you on heroin altogether? At that, that time, oh, oh, only a couple of years, then about 20 more later on. I had six years off heroin. And then I had, had a run from uh, 78 to 95. Wow. Yeah, different. different yeah, oh, it got way worse. It was bad in my 60s, it got way worse. And not that the amounts of drugs got way, way worse, they got better, better quality. I became a better junkie, you know. Uh, in those eight, when I was 17, 18, I wasn't a good junkie. I, I, I was scared most of the time, I, you know. I, I was just getting enough money just to squeak by, you know. Later on, I get better at it, <laughs> you know. You know I, 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 better at it how, though? Uh, better at making money without going to jail. And better at uh, buying the quality heroin. Like knowing who was who, basically. Right, right, right. And I know that you're, just from the little that I know of you, I know from what you talk about, and I know that you got involved in construction in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was always talented. You know, anything I fucking did. You did it well. Yeah, a good thief, you know, a good, good concrete Kid. I was wheel, doing wheelbarrows at, at 14 years old and forms and uh, floating cement, you know. Uh, I just jump in and do it because that's what I got to do. And uh, I was handy and I had a mechanical mind to, 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 to a degree. You know, my best friend was a super mechanical mind. He was, he was brilliant, you know, but he was stuck on stupid like me. Yeah, you know? it's it just... Uh, Anyway, you know, in the 70s, this whole, this, I get a break, a life-changing breaks, you know. Uh, I end up in college, never went to high school. I mean, I take it closely because this beautiful blonde says to my best friend's sister, who I love, I fell in love with her at 11, and uh, she says, why don't you, she says, you're so capable to do more. She just thought a lot of me. You know? And you're like, I will do anything to get this girl. Well, I, I already had her. I just, but I, I liked her. I always liked her. You know, she was, uh, I don't know, just, besides being beautiful, she was about life. Me and my friends were about death. <laughs> you know? Uh, and, 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 I, and I would steal anything for her. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> uh, and she would yell at me because she, she didn't want me. She was dysfunctional, too. But so anyway, she talks me into 
getting a high school equivalency diploma, taking a test. I bought the book, read the book, passed the test. That was my high school, you know? And, and I applied to St. John's University, and I got in, you know? So that was a whole totally different experience. Once a guy like me, I tell people, oh, yeah, I went from, from, from uh, Rikers Island to St. John's. You know, St. John's was a great school, beautiful place. I liked it. I like, you know, like I'm always feeling like an alien, you know. But you love the learning and you love the yeah. potential and the possibility. I and yeah, I wasn't looking for friends. I didn't make one friend. Four years, 2,000 students. I make one, I make one friend sugar, <laughs> you know, and only because she would drive me to the racetrack after right. <laughs> at school. And the priest used to say to me, she'd see me with the books, all the books, and the racing form on top. <laughs> Classic. So, so I had that, that, that was a pleasant part of my life, those four years in college, and I used to meet her in, in uh, New York City at the new school, that she was doing graduate work, and I'd help her with that, and, uh, and we would spend time in the city, and it was a nicer slice of life, you know, that I didn't reject it with her. It was like the way life is meant to be for yeah. a minute. It was like an oasis. It was the eye of the hurricane in your life. Yeah, exactly. And, and it helped with my self-esteem a little bit because I was an A student for four years. You I, did well at college. You knew, yeah. like, had you chosen this path, you could have done it, but you, for whatever reason, you were drawn to the dark side. You were self-medicating. You were doing all this stuff. Even, but while, even while I was in St. John's performing well, I was on 100 milligrams of methadone. Okay. You know, so, and if you've ever been on a methadone, you know that it stimulates your brain. You could read novels, you could read, you know, endlessly, you know. Uh, but then I got off the methadone at the end of the schooling. I mean, you know, she went and married a doctor, you know, broke my heart. But she asked me first, can I? And I said, of course you can, because I'm going to hell. <laughs> you know, we always kind of knew that. You know, we're still friends to this It was day. like a limited time thing. And yeah. She wanted you, you wanted her, but then she knew that she couldn't have the kind of life that she could have with somebody no, else. No, she wanted a uh, a family and a nice house in Westchester. That's what she wanted, you know. And, and she I, figured it out. And I knew that's what she wanted, and I couldn't give it to her, you know. Maybe you could have, but you weren't going to. I wasn't going to give up my, yeah. My, right. Yeah, I was way too immature, you know. So I said, but we're fabulous friends to this day. You know, and uh, so anyway, I get out of college, and uh, my seizure comes back. I have a seizure, and so I'm out of it for a while. And uh, so me and my other best friend, two best friends, one was a cop, and one was, and I, I love them both. You know, they didn't love each other so much, but I loved them both, and they both loved me. You know, and uh, so me and the cop, we get an apartment together. I get off the methadone. You know, it was rough. I did, yeah. I did it way too quick. I know how to do it now, and you won't lose a night's sleep. But back then, I came up too fast, and man, I suffered. bad. Yeah. I suffered. So, but I stayed, you know, okay, for a while. And we got to the apartment, and then I became Disco Joe. Okay. The white suit, fucking tan, healthy, put on all this weight. We're, we're running, we're jogging. I, I walk into a bar. I pick out any fucking woman I want. Boom. Boom. I tell my guy, I said, pick out a woman. I'll get her. You were you were in in the glory. Oh, that was the glory. I'm no methadone, that. white suit, tan kid, fit. Kid in the candy store. Because you could talk anybody up. Oh, kid in the candy store. Okay. I was fun, <laughs> you know. And, and but then that that uh, wore out, you know. Sure. And, you want to get high. Well, it's along the it's, it started coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started you know dipping the air with the heroin, and uh, because I still had no no goal in life, just play. 
get high and play. That was my goal. I'll work so I can play, you know? And, and I, you know, and I did, I did siding, I did roofs, I did whatever the hell, you know? And, and I make enough money to play. Yeah. And but you, did you were you guarding against a habit like you trying to yeah because you knew like what it would be if you did this yeah I tried not to you know I'd get these chippies I and fight it off and it was hard you know because uh, now I was running into much better quality heroin you know uh, I didn't even go get it I paid people to go to Harlem go get it you know? and you were making good money and you yeah I was making enough to, to to get what I needed you know uh, and. Uh, so by 1979, I started to go down hard again on the heroin. You know, I started to take me over again. So I had that, that kind of break from like 72 to like 79. Where I wasn't running, 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 running. You, know, was, you went to school. You had a nice yeah, relationship. Right. You're uh, doing Disco Joe. Right. I on, got you. On the surface, I looked normal, but I knew I wasn't. It wasn't done. No. It I, wasn't done. No. I... I, I didn't know what was, you know, I didn't know. Like, you know, I, I really didn't know, but I knew something wasn't right about me, you know, with the schools. I just didn't want what normal people wanted, which, you know, responsibility. Like, I, I was an A student because I liked it. I didn't do nothing I didn't like. <laughs> right, you enjoyed doing right. well. You enjoyed the learning and you enjoyed the success and the respect and, and the feeling yeah. of doing well. Yeah, and... and, 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 and and that was it. When that was gone, it was just left, left with me again. And I still had no clue, no hope, no Chasing dream. the high. Yeah, well, dan- dancing, girls, sex, music, you know, that was fun. Drinking, that was fun for a while, you know. Dr- dr- I drove drunk all the time. I had a driver's license from 1969 to 1990-something <laughs> and never stopped driving. Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you get sidetracked with Coke and all that at that point that, or that no? Came le- that came... Uh, all right, here's how that package went. So 1979, I'm working on Wall Street, thinking I'm all ready to rob $30 million. I'm working in, I'm in charge of gold. <laughs> I'm in charge of gold. From diamond rings to gold. Yeah, I'm telling you, you won't believe this shit. You know, I'm the only, only guy at Chasing American Express who has the key to the vault. My signature would activate... How did you wind up there? How the fuck do I know? Right. Well, I'll tell you how. I, I drifted into there. And I was a very likable guy. You still are. And I was very good with, with money. And people. With figures. Okay. You know, I balanced books and stuff. I was very good. I had a sharp memory. And uh, I ended up in charge of gold deliveries, you know? And, and, and so one, one day, uh, a woman from Kansas, some collector, calls up and says, well, oh, we want to uh, take delivery about, you know, when they take their positions in the futures. I said, we want to take... Uh, Delivery on our gold coins. I look up the contract, a million dollars in gold coins. So I fill out a little paperwork. I sign it, right? And uh, I call up Brinks, and they come to me. I give them the certificate. They go to the vault. They Take pick the up a million dollars. And, and the girl calls me from Kansas and says, thank you very much. I got the gold. And I'm thinking, motherfucker, I just sent this woman a million dollars in gold. I could have sent it to anybody. You know, my signature made it valid. Brinks would take it to whoever the fuck I tell. So I start gathering gold. <laughs> what do you come up with this? <laughs> so, so I start gathering gold certificates in my drawer. And I, I gathered $30 million in my drawer. All I had to do was sign them. 
and and I was going my my loose plan was to sell them to to the, to the wise guys for for ten percent of face value. That was my plan, but. I had nobody backing me up. I said, these guys ain't going to hand me fucking $3 million. They're going to kill me. Because <laughs> so I, I it's way cheaper to just take the money. Just to kill me. Of course. They can't give me $3 million. And they know that. Right. If, I have, if I'm walking in with John Gotti or something. You didn't have backup. You didn't no. have anybody that could vouch. There was nothing. No. There was no consequence. Oh, I was a junkie. Right. Yeah, you were the junkie from the neighborhood, right? They, uh-huh. they were, and I punked out at the last minute. And I know it's a good thing because I would have got killed for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's 1979, and uh, I'm strung out, and and uh, it's getting hard. Now I start. Let me think what happened. All through the 80s, somewhere around 1980, 81, the cocaine popped in. I'm, I, I can't do what, what happened is I can't run the heroin anymore. I get on the methadone. But I still junkie, still want something. I don't want to go to college no more on methadone. No, I, I, I want that's shit. done. Yeah, that's done. So, uh, so I run it. Run that to, girl's uh, gone, so the St. John's yeah, fantasy is over. Yeah. Yes. So, so I, I, now I should go back to who I really am, you know? And uh, and that's how I felt. I I tried to be normal. I'm not, you know. And uh, normal for you is being on methadone. Yeah, and, and anything else, you know. And uh, so so I started to. I ran into my mailman, who used to be my heroin dealer, and, and, and he was he had, he was doing cocaine now. And I had never done cocaine. I had no interest in fucking cocaine. I was a heroin addict. I wanted to go like this. I didn't want no interest. So, but I'm on methadone now. I can't do cocaine. So he says, all right, you just shoot it up. I says, okay. So I shoot up the cocaine with my methadone. I have instant fucking seizures, you know. I'm really crazy, you know. And and, 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 and I say, I got to find a better way to do this, you know. Uh-huh. So what I did was, and I did this kind of all through the 80s. I lowered my, got on my methadone dose down to like 40, you know, at the program. Because 40, uh, I could shoot heroin. It's okay. low enough that you can feel the dope. Right. No, Especially I if I make coke with it. You know, so that's what the package I started to do for years. I would take 40 milligrams of methadone in the morning. I'd pick up heroin and cocaine in the afternoon. Do it all night long. And uh, actually the heroin came later. I was still doing the coke because I ended up in a psych hospital. You know, uh, because I was psychotic. I tried to kill people in blackouts. Cocaine blackouts. People say, what? Cocaine blackouts. I says, yeah. I says, you ever see O.J. Simpson on the night that he killed his wife? That motherfucker had a cocaine blackout. I seen it. I says, because I've done it. Right. You know, I had my hands around women's throats in cocaine blackouts. No one ever talks about that, though. That's, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Nobody nobody talks about that. That was probably the story with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. could see it because you knew it. I, you I, lived it. I, I was watching it on TV. I saw, I, that was me. That was me, you know? And, uh... He may not even remember what the fuck he did, you know, because I didn't, you know. So, yeah, so the progression into the 80s, like I see, now I I got the package of... Speedballs or shooting coke off of the methadone so that you you need to, like, wake up, basically. The methadone's got you, like... Drowsy and no, I'm going. No, the I didn't get drowsy on methadone. I would get thick. I mean, I I would be on 150 milligrams. I was on 150 milligrams in Los Angeles for 
like six years. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, I would take pills. I would take uh, the Xanax and the Clonopins, yeah. yeah. and I would just stay down. Like, yeah. I never got up because no, no, I thought naturally I was up, so I never sought out being up. I was always just down, 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 <laughs> down. And I think back on stuff, I barely remember anything because there were always so many pills around. Well, you know? Xanax is like a memory wipeout. Exactly. You know? Uh, and it is, say, we all kind of try the same things. Anything but, like, people say, well, what's your drug of choice? I says, all I know is sobriety is my last choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I prefer alcohol, heroin, you know. Uh, now, I can say, I never really liked cocaine. I can't, you know, like, I didn't have my sexual experiences with cocaine was psychotic. You were just insane. I was insane. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, uh, but I, I, so I really didn't like it. I like heroin. It makes you feel, oh, I love you, and you're okay. Cocaine made me crazy, right? And I says, even though I didn't like cocaine, I, I did it almost every night for 15 years. Because it fucked you up. It made you different. It made me different. Yes. You know, and I had my heroin to go with it, which made it tolerable, you know? For me, the cocaine, like, I shot a tiny bit of coke, and I was just like, it was, it was, I, it made me uncomfortable, like, it didn't, I didn't get psychotic. I probably didn't do enough of it to yeah, get there. Yeah. I just knew I didn't want to spend I don't money. want to get there. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even know I didn't want to get there. I just yeah. knew that when I felt uncomfortable, I was like, that's not why I'm doing this. And I just, I, I mean, luckily, I didn't go down that route. Like, my, yeah. my, the guy who I used to do the podcast with, he was, uh, you know, an alcoholic, heroin addict, and he lived to shoot coke. Right. And he lived for that bell-ringing coke thing. Yeah. And, like, for me, like, I did it a couple times. I felt that, but it was like, I don't... I didn't want it. Yeah. You know, and sometimes when he would talk about it, I'd be like, maybe I missed out on something. <laughs> but I know I didn't. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So you, you you got into that kind of thing just to turn the light on, right? You know, like I said, there wasn't a lot of thought involved. I did this. I do that. I do that. You know? I, uh, I said I didn't like cocaine, but I did like the rush. You know, I, I did. I, I was addicted to, I was addicted to needles. You know, like I never snorted heroin. You know, until I got, until I moved out here, and I would snort heroin for the ride home. <laughs> <laughs> because you couldn't be shooting while you were driving. No. Yeah. No, I was patient. I, I was, had a weird patience. I could go to the city, cop my d- 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 dope, you know, and, and wait until I got home so I don't spill the shit. You don't have to worry about the cops. You know, I used to go with these women. They, they were terrible because you had to stop on the bridge, and they had to get high now. Right. <laughs> I would cop in Brooklyn, and I would come home, and for a long time I would be patient just like you because I knew that when I got home, it would be so nice. Yeah. You know, it would be, like, perfect. I'd have everything the way I wanted it, and I would feel exactly like I wanted it. But then when I got impatient, what I would do is I would sniff a bag on the platform. Right. You know, I would... For the ride home. Exactly. And I would love that. I remember I'd sit on the subway, and I'd be so grateful that I could... I wasn't sick anymore, and that I could feel this... This great chemical fucking vacation or whatever. Ay, ay, ay. Isn't it so crazy? It's like, right now, Joe, Joe, how old are you? 70. Joe's 70 years old. I'm 46. We're sitting at the dining room table eating cookies and donuts, reminiscing on a, a life of, a, you know. Devastation. Exactly. And, um, again, Joe's 25 years clean, you know. So, so in the 80s, there's methadone, there's coke. When did you settle back into the straight dope? Never. It stayed that package right to the end. Really? Yeah. Okay. Once the cocaine became part of it, it was inseparable. Now, 
I had to have both. I, I couldn't have one without the other. Always speed bowling. Always. Always, you know. And uh, it just became part of the package. You know, I had uh, just loved... For me to love the feeling of heroin, I would literally have to clean off everything. I don't even know even then. I, I just think it became connected. You know, I had to have both. Like I said, it didn't matter if I liked it or not. Because you wouldn't feel it almost. It's like, it's like... It's Something almost, would be missing. It's like you can't... You, like I, I said, you want... You know, I said, I got donuts. You want a donut? And you're like, yeah. I was like, do you want some milk? And you're like, yeah, I needed to wash it down. Yeah. And it was almost like, like a that. Set. Like, like a set. Right. Right. You know, something had changed chemically in me, whatever. Uh, and you were addicted to the two together, two is what together. it was. Yeah. And so, and that went on for how long? Uh, from 80 to 95. Right. So we're talking about 15 years, you're doing construction, you're making money, you're, you're, you're managing jobs, right? One summer, I made so much money. Now, I wasn't a foreman, but I was good at what I did. One summer at the South Street Seaport, you know, when they built the original one, I was there. And, uh, I was making so much money that I bought a house, I bought a brand new car, and supported my heroin and cocaine habit. Yeah, which is crazy. It doesn't happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course it all went to nothing, you know. How did it start to unravel? Because you think 15 years of crazy earning, connections that are reliable, safety at home, like... I mean, obviously, if you're an addict, you know that shit never lasts. You know, the connection yeah. never lasts. Something goes wrong. You well, get picked up. Well, I, how did I, it start to unravel? I had, I, I had uh, my own crazy maintenance program, you know? It's like I said, I, I, would, I could get methadone or get on a program easy enough, you know? And I would take that, that methadone. I, I, I got my union job in around 82 or something. And... Uh, I would take the, the, the morning methadone and go to work and then buy the heroin and cocaine after work and do it at work, you know? And, uh, and when, it, when it ran, when it became too hard, too much, I'd go to rehab for 28 days. And we had good coverages in the unions, I'd go to rehab. I'd come out, do it again, you know? And, uh, and I was also, also okay at kicking. I could kick. It no. wasn't like, I'm never doing this again. Oh, no. It was just like, this is par for the course. Well, it, yeah. I, I, this is the cost of doing business with this. Yeah, I, I, I have no hopes, no dreams. This is what I do. I've run my whole life. I you know, grew up in crises. I'm used to crises. I'm used to running. I'm not used to uh, a family, you know, coming home, taking care of the kids. I'm not used to that, you know. Uh, I'm used to running and and going. When you're going to rehab over and over, detox over and over, whatever, you know how, like, I'm sure eventually you were like, I don't want to do this again. Was, were those thoughts ever in your head during the runs? Or were you just like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to lick my wounds, and I'm going to come out and start again? Or, was it, or did it start wearing on you? It wasn't a thought process. Okay. You know, it's just, I just did it. Did my drugs, did, did the addiction did the thinking for me. Right. You know, the rehabs were part of it. Detoxes were part of it. I was very good at kicking. I was not a whiner or complainer. You know, uh, I wasn't a whiny Jew. I was the I was the master whiny Jew complainer. <laughs> Fucking, I, I I I like even when things are good, I, I I think I make them better by complaining. I think I just I I can't help myself. I love it. It's who you are. It's what are you gonna do? Yeah. Anyway, continue. Uh, uh, yeah. So. Wait a second, did you just call me a whiny Jew? No. I'm, I'm no, just playing. No, I heard that this morning. Yes, it was me. I know. Uh, and uh, so, so the, uh, 
the hospitalizations became more frequent in the 80s. You know, first of all, there was more uh, services. Back in the 60s and early 70s, there was nothing. There was nothing. Were you still having seizures? Oh, yeah, in the 80s all the time. I would have seizures, too. I would would have seizures off the pills. Yeah. You know, and I would would wake up in crazy places, and I thought I would just doze off. Meanwhile, I'm seizing. Yeah. You know, it happened yeah. over and over to yeah, me. Yeah, that was a rocky nap. Yeah, I, I was on a plane once for a job, and uh, and I'm getting ready for takeoff, and I kind of, I'm, I'm fucking, you know, I'm high, whatever. And the next thing I know, I'm on a stretcher getting taken off the plane, and I was like, what? I just dozed off. And, and I'm like, my tongue has got the fucking bite out of it and the whole thing. But that's that was my thing. So you're you're... As the world is getting aware of how to deal with addiction, maybe you're learning a little bit more about it just by happenstance. Well, I, 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 I learned on ways to keep my addiction going and staying out of jail. So I had to find things to do that work, hospitals, when it gets out of control, go to a hospital, you know. Because uh, I wanted to keep my addiction alive. I, I remember... It was you. Yeah, well, I remember this is what I want. Somewhere along the line, this is what I want. I, I tried to be normal like my brother and my cousins, you know. Uh, they all thought about annuity plans and insurance and mortgages, and I didn't give a shit. You knew about speedballs and methadone. Right. And, and yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would fish with them. I would do things with them, Some, you know, but then I had my world. Did they have any idea of the depths of your Place? No, 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 they love me. I, I'm, I'm blessed. My family always loved me, you know, and, and I just went my way, you know. I love them, and I just went my way. This is my course. You know, we never talked about it. No one asked me why I do this. They didn't, didn't have a clue why I do the things I did. And I also didn't draw my family into a lot of stuff I did. I didn't. You want, were independent. Yeah, I, I, I'll live or die on my own, you know. You get to see them, you get to go fishing, but then yeah. when you leave, you get your your Yeah, your racetrack, ball. I go to racetrack yeah. if I happen to be on methadone and, you know... Stable enough to go to the racetrack. Yes, I yeah. got it. Yeah, and uh, I'm still very close with my whole family, Yeah. But, uh, and at the worst, you weren't pushing them away, you weren't fucking it up with them at the worst? No, I, I, never, I like I said, I didn't drag them into my stuff. You just probably disappeared. I disappeared. Right. Yeah, I disappeared. My father... And my sister saw me some, you know, my, my father probably saw me. He would come to the jails if I told him don't. He would come anyway. He'd come to the rehabs. He was the type of guy, when I first got arrested for my first heroin in 1968, so he goes and gets a, a wise guy lawyer, you know, pinstripes, right? And so we're in a court house in Brooklyn, and the uh, the lawyer comes up with my father, you know, and, and the lawyer says to my father, he says, Dom, he shows him the gun. He says, take him out and shoot him. Wow. Put him out of his he, he says he's on heroin. My father's, my father's, he says, that's my son. He says, fuck you. Get rid of the lawyer. And I said, good, thanks. That's my lawyer. He wants to shoot me. <laughs> yeah. That's an amazing story in itself, though. I mean, that story kind of tells the whole story. That's, yeah. Because the lawyer knew what your dad was dealing with. Your dad saw you as the son, and then you had a lifetime of destruction, you know? Luckily, like you're saying, you were separated from your dad anyway. You probably gave him a kiss when you'd see him, and then you'd go on your way. Pretty much. You know, well, my father had a tough family. You know, my my mother was very sick. And And he stood by her. That's where I learned from. That's why I stuck by with Travis's mother. Right. 
Chavez's mother, you know, and today she's sober. And uh, and I'll tell you a funny story about my father and Travis's mother. She was whacked out crack addict. Like she could write a book of her own, you know. And uh, so so she comes over the house drunk and falling down. And my, and my father says to me, he says, don't do what I did with my mother. But he, you know, my, he, he says, don't do what I did. When he saw you with her. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so the next day, I go to her house to go see her. Who's sitting outside guarding her? My father. Because he did it, right? <laughs> so when, when did things change? How did things change? Like, what was the beginning of it? The beginning of, of the... Uh, of of the, the end. Well... Okay, as, I, as I'm in the 80s, they start uh, forcing me to go to meetings in, in St. John's Far Rockaway, all the detoxes. They started to talk about... Institute 12-step stuff in the detox, right. in the rehab. They would, no, they would bring outside meetings. So this was the first time... The H&I kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, cause, so I'm starting to be exposed to that. It's part of, you, you come here, you have to go. And I wasn't a willing member... You know, but I'd go. And I started to hear messages that maybe, because pretty much I felt like nobody's as fucked up as I am. People like me die. I left the day. I said, I said, they don't get better. So, and this one guy came in, he said uh, that he was an alcoholic addict. Now, in the 80s, that was a new term. See, back in the 70s, and NA, the NAs used to drink after the meetings. They had drinking. You know, uh, TCs had drinking privileges. So alcohol was alcohol and drugs were drugs. Right. Now, cocaine changed all that because cocaine went into the bars. So now you had alcoholics doing cocaine who are now alcoholic addicts. <laughs> so that was a game changer for, for bringing it drugs because into the coke, Because the coke allowed the alcoholic to drink, right. basically. So yeah. the two became inseparable. But Whereas no. most junkies weren't drinking on the no. side. Right. right. Exactly. I used to say, I feel sorry. I used to say, I feel sorry for crack addicts. I says, because, uh, I says, I know what I'm in for with heroin, cocaine, shooting it. I know what I'm in for. They don't. They're out in the clubs drinking and, and start doing this free base. I says, they don't know what they're fucking in for. Right. <laughs> They think it's a party. Right. And then all of a sudden it's slavery, yeah. basically. Yeah. So you, you get exposed to this stuff in these in these programs. So, yeah, I get exposed to the recovery message uh, in, sometime in the 80s. And, uh, of course, I reject it. But, you know, the mustard seeds planted. The guy calls himself an alcoholic addict. He reminded me of my friends. Like, my best friend was an alcoholic addict. Eddie. Eddie. He was, he was a bona fide alcoholic. You know, I... It was a little harder to tell on me, you know? But uh, you would look at me, you'd call me a junkie. You looked at him, you, you might call him an alcoholic, you know? But uh, so this guy says alcoholic addict, and, and, and he talks a little to me, and he was on heroin and alcohol, and, and uh, he says, AA, go to AA. He goes, people are going to tell you you don't belong there. Back in the 80s, if you talked about drugs at an AA meeting, you were going to hear some shit. Right. You know? So uh, he says, go to AA. He says, if somebody tells you you don't belong there, he says, tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> you know? That's what I tell people now. And they, they, people tell me I shouldn't go to AA. People, I mean, like, I don't hear, I mean, not people in the program, but I hear it from people. How could you go to AA? You barely drank, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, because I'm going to get the message I need to hear to have a good life. Well, all, all, all you really need, first of all, you remember when you say you are. And, and, and all you need is a desire to, to stop drinking. drinking. Right. That's it. You don't have to explain shit to nobody. Exactly. You know. 
And but uh, I'll tell you what, somebody the first first advice that I followed in AA was off Big Gay Tony. He says, Joe, because I used to call myself an addict and alcoholic, and he said, Joe, he says, this is AA. He says, at least put alcoholic first. Right, right. That was the first direction I followed, and it was a wise one. It was a wise one. Right. So if you ever get a chance, turn it around. Alcoholic addict. It, put it first, because when in Rome, kind of thing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. People, it, 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 I found it a good thing to do. Eventually, over time now, I, I, I you don't need alcohol. to say your name because you know, you're just a member of the club. Yeah, I, I came out here not knowing anybody, right? And I didn't want to know anybody. And look at all the people I fucking know now. When did it change for you in wanting it and and knowing that you know because you were like you you've professed the love of the substances, the 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 kind of life mission to get high, to medicate, to to go on that journey. And now you're like, I mean, you live and die by this program, mostly live. You're luckily not it, dying. It came it. in increments. Little bits at a time. Because from, I'll say from 89, I was so physically beat up, so weak. It was finally catching up with you, basically. Well, I, I had heard years ago, read something that they said that most alcoholics or addicts, especially addicts they were talking about, they said they either stop or die right. around the age of 40. You know, And I found that to play out pretty much for a lot of people. Because you're getting older, you know? Uh, your payback time is longer. You, go out you can't and, recuperate the no, same kind of way. Recuperate. You don't have so that, that ability. I, I didn't have the bounce back. I was... I had gotten so bad in around 89, I couldn't walk. I mean, I would, with the last ounce of strength in my body, I would go get heroin and coke. When I wasn't strong enough to do anything else, you know? So I was really worn down, you know? And uh, so in 89, 1990, my family decided to move to May. I went to a rehab at Marworth in Pennsylvania. And... Uh, I was going to, I had money at the time, so I had money. <laughs> and, and I was going to buy a chalet and stay in Pennsylvania. Just stay in Pennsylvania, see what happens. I, you know, uh, so I, I put some money down on a, if I get out of a 45-day rehab. And my father sold his house and moved out to Mastic. And, and uh, they didn't want me to come home to Queens. They said, you know, my friends were dying, my close friends. The young kid that thought I was the Fonz, he killed himself, you know. Uh, and, and he saw I was, I was going, you know. Uh, and uh, so the, the deal, the woman changed her mind on the chalet. For whatever freaking reason, she changed her mind. So I'm, I'm up in Marworth, Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, I've been away for 45 days, you know, and I look good and everything. And... Uh, they sell house. Now, in Marworth, which is a beautiful facility, all cops, firemen, lawyers, doctors, you know, and everybody in the facility is a drug user. Even the doctors, surgeons, everybody, you know. And, and uh, so it's a nice, powerful place to be in. And uh, I get out of that place. They set me up with a contact to go to a meeting. I went to meetings every day in there. I'm a great patient. And the head doctor bears me before I go home. He says... I know you ain't got shit. Right. He says, he says, he says, you remind me of me. Right. Everybody thinks I got it. I say great shit. He says, you ain't got shit. 
and they sent, sent me up with a, with a contact in Queens when I got home. Call the contact. They'll take me to a meeting. By the time I got home, I was high. Right. It, 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 all the time I was away, I didn't think about it. But, but so, the second you got back. I'm sorry. And that, that was one of the powerless. You know, I started to... You think you can do something, but then you can't do it. No. And I'll tell you what... Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, I started to get some desire for sobriety. They move out to Mastic. First day in Mastic, I go to all the bars, and I find out where the AA meetings are. I drink, I get the list, you know? Uh, and uh, I start going to the meetings regularly, and Mastic was a very violent, crazy town back then, 25 years ago, you know? Uh, and, uh, but I felt comfortable there. I identified with them. You were one of them. They're crazy, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so I started to make a pact with myself. I said, you know, like I said, my first detox was 1968. My last one was 89, 90, whatever the fuck it was, you know. So I said, I'm going to make a pact with myself. I'm not going to lay down and die from this disease without an effort. I said, I'm going to go to these meetings every day. And, and I said, and if I get high, so what? I did all I could. So I used to go to the meetings every day. And get high at night, you know. Or, uh, and if uh, everybody, everybody in Mastic knew me, all the A means this is when I was methadone, Joe. And, and you know, I'd be nodding out on the table. People say, "You high?" I say, "Fuck no." But you were, you were, will, you were not willing to stop going to the meetings. You were like, no. "I'm making this decision. That, Even if I get high, I'm going to keep going." If I die, I'm dying after a meeting. I'm not just staying home and fucking dying. And what do you think gave you that desire? I I don't know. God, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I just, uh, I couldn't do the, the drugs anymore. I couldn't keep up with them. I didn't have the strength, you know? So uh, I had to try this. And you made the commitment. You said, I'm going to do this no matter what. I didn't say I'm going to get sober no matter what. You said, I'm going to go to meetings no matter what. Right. Even if I'm high, I'm going to go. And, Whatever and, the case may be, I'm going, rain or shine. And everybody in Mastic knew me, and they, they knew that's what I did. Went to me, my friend Danny, who's still a good friend, he, he says to me, he was using alcohol, and he says, uh, don't drink and go to meetings, Joe. I said, Danny, if I could not drink, <laughs> I wouldn't have to go to meetings. And right. he thought about it. I was actually talking about shooting dope, and, and he says, oh, then, then drink and go to meetings. If that's the best you could do, and that was the best I could do. So I went fucked up to a lot of meetings. And as crazy as that is, you're carrying the message even if you're fucked up at meetings. Well... You're just carrying the message of, of, of what kind of not to do. Right. Well, I was just attended meetings. There was no, uh, I made coffee, took coffee commitments. You know, I was pleasant, you know, as long as you stayed away from my, you know, drugs. <laughs> and uh, and that's what I did. I just felt in my heart if there was any place, any way out for me, it was through these rooms. Because these people were bonafide crazy. They're here too. And, I, and I've been everywhere else. I mean, with special pulses and, uh, you know. Uh, so I just knew that if there was anywhere, and, if I, and I felt okay about it, that, you know, if I, I, if I die after going to a meeting, okay, I did all the fuck I could. You, you know? did what was suggested and you gave it a shot. I, I gave it more than a shot. It was a lot more than a shot. I mean, I was all in. I was at the meetings all the time. I didn't, like, just pop around once a week. I got to meetings all the time. Shoot my dope, shoot my coke, come to the meeting crazy. But I came to the meeting. This is what I tell people is come to the meeting. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You know? 
and, and, you know, I would get a, a few days, a week, you know. Sometimes I could hold out that long. I had my combinations of methadone, heroin. And, Trying to and, dial it in and, or whatever. You know, yeah, but I had to go to a meeting. But I go to a meeting. I go to a meeting. Because I felt strongly in my heart. If it's anywhere on this planet, it's here, you know. The answer to this thing. For me, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, so after coming and, and making a lot of friends, uh, and uh, and a lot of bad things, you know. People people were drawn to me for for my illness. You know, some of the girls they wanted to get high with me. Some of the guys wanted to get high with me. I didn't want to get high with nobody. That was a very personal thing. <laughs> I shared it with one girl, and she's the one that died. Uh, but I, so I made all those meetings, and this is where the coup de grace, the end, you know, the miracle happens. In all these meetings, got all these friends. I stringed together 90 days, which was first time in 30 years, whatever, you know, well, nothing, methanol, 30, 30 days, uh, 90 days, 90 days, at St. Andrews, which is still there, and... Uh, you were living there, or was you... Yeah, I was living right there. So they, they said, everybody said, Joe's got 90 days, right? And he said, you're speaking, you know? Okay, so I get up in front and I speak. They're all my friends now, I know all those people. And uh, uh, so I speak, I share the story, and they give me a standing ovation. I mean, this whole room, they had to be, it was packed, you know? And they give me a standing ovation. I, 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 I tingled from head to toe. I really mean it, you know? Like, you know? And I said, wow, I've arrived. I'm fucking free, I'm out. It's like 30 year life sentence, and you're fucking free. And, uh, and, I, and I tingled from head to toe, and the very next day I picked up. Right. Automatic. Holy. You know, it's like, you know, being released from jail, and the next day we can have a jail. How'd I get here? You know, and, I, and, and that's, that was where I realized the extent of powerlessness. Right. You know, I made a lot of friends, and they loved me, and we made coffee, and we went skiing, and we, whatever the fuck we did. I, I says, but rarely have we seen anyone fail who has thoroughly followed the path. And did I thoroughly follow the path? No, I did not. Did I, did I re repair that relationship with God? No, I did not. I just made a lot of friends, did a lot of nice things, and started together 90 days. So when I realized that, I went home, got on my knees. I begged. And that's when it, that's when the spiritual kicked in? That's when the spiritual After you had gotten the 90 days, you felt the spirit, you were vibrating with love and the next day you pick up and you're like what the fuck did I not get and it was the spiritual piece that you didn't get it, well, yeah it was the, the work part of the program the, the maintenance part it's a daily reprieve see I had some spirituality the night before but I woke up with none mm. you know and uh, oh that's where the daily reprieve comes from and the copping was automatic that morning oh everything went automatic there was no thinking, thought process well, I woke up and that's when you learned how the daily reprieve even functions. Right, for me. And, and that's, that's a huge lesson. And that's why you see me at a meeting every day. And even when I worked in Manhattan, 4.15 in the morning, I got up in Mastic. I went to my job, construction, all day long. Came home, went to the gym, went to a meeting. Every day for eight years. Didn't miss one. Not one. Because I was so grateful. I was so fucking grateful. And you used the program the way you used the drugs. You did it every day. You're not yeah. going to miss a fucking day of using. You weren't going to miss a day of that. And your life was finally 
yours. Yeah. You know, and like after a lifetime of all this stuff, yeah. I'm sure like it's scary as hell like to to think about losing what you had gained. So you hang on to it. And yeah. not to mention you're helping people. Yeah, well, that's part of the package. That's part of the maintenance. You hear it, but at times you say, how does that fit in? You know, I got to give it away to keep it. What kind of fucking jelly beans is that? But it ends up really true. Ends up really true. You know, because what happens is in the giving, the feeling you look for in the needle, that's what we get in feeling the love. That's what you get from your kids, your wife, helping others. You know, like I, there's some people that around the country that will say they wouldn't be alive if they didn't know me. That's powerful fucking shit. <laughs> I mean, I believe it. I mean, I think that even just... The first time I heard you open your mouth at the meeting, I knew what you gave to that bunch of people, you know? And the other thing is, like, when, when I... I mean, I described the first time I went to that meeting and I shared something about myself, and you shared what you shared so, so that you knew that I wouldn't be the only fucking junkie at that meeting. And you, you didn't know me. Right. You just knew that I was probably the only other junkie you, at that meeting. You needed to hear that welcoming. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so... When did it start to get comfortable? How long did it take to be comfortable? Uh, it was... It, compared to, to the darkness, it was immediately comfortable. You know what I mean? To wake up and not have to go... It, it took, put it this way. It took me... It was different levels. Just like the bottoms were progressively lower, comfortability was like that, too. You know, just wake up totally comfortable. But I, I, I had gratitude instantly... When I, I surrendered, did the 12s, I had an instant. I just, uh, like I said, Mastic, they gave me the name Smiling Joe. From, from, from the day before to the day after, they, I became Smiling Joe. After you, you, you yeah. qualified on the 90-day thing. Pretty much. And yeah. then you used it, and nobody, nobody said shit about it. Oh, no. Right? No. And it's funny, like, I, I, I just, you know, I just got uh, five years, and this Sunday I'm going to celebrate at the, at the meeting. And and I've been struggling, you know what I mean? Like I've been, and I and I went to Joe after the meeting, and uh, I was like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. I'm supposed, and you feel like you're supposed to be in tune with everything because you get five years together, and you you're like, dude, you're never here, you know what I mean? And it's like I, I'm basically popping in once a week, and uh, and that's not the same thing. That's not going for eight years straight every day, yeah. and. Um, and it, and it requires that commitment, you know. What I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go every day, but I'm gonna go fucking more than I'm going and and commit myself spiritually, yeah. to to the higher power. You you know you could do more. I, there's no way I couldn't do more. And I know also that if I don't, forget picking up, just being miserable, just being crazy. Right. Like you know what I'm saying. Like the point is not you don't get sober so you could say you're sober you yeah. get you get sober so you can enjoy Turn your life. life exactly and, and share it with your family exactly. because that's one of the keys in recovery is really uh returning to love to real love not the love of, that the needle gave us but to really love your wife and child and feel it you know and, and being vulnerable you know let your guard down you know sharing uh you know, that's what the program has taught me all about, letting my guard down. If I got to cry, cry. Being I, vulnerable. Being vulnerable. Let me ask you this, though, because you said when you were eight or nine or whatever, God wasn't working for you. You no. know what I mean? And here we are, you know, 
however many years later, and when you found, how did you find God, you know, in, in the midst of getting better? Like, how did that happen for you? Well, because wasn't it unnatural? I'll tell you how, how it happened. Uh, the uh, cowboy Ron, there's a line you hear around the you now and then. He says, if you don't like your God, because I'm figuring out the Christian, I'm figuring out, I went to every church, Scientology, synagogues, I'd go to any church that the, I would go. Looking yeah. for some sort something, of spiritual something. path. Right. And uh, he, said, he said to me, he says, if you don't like your God, Borrow mine, you know? He says, because mine loves and adores me. And I said, wow, what a concept. I said, <laughs> I said my God, I, I, I thought he just want to fucking crucify me to get even. Right. You know? Because uh, that's yes. how I, I envisioned it, you know? But uh, so I, I started to use my logic. And I said, okay, just suppose I got a God, a cowboy Rons, who loves and adores me. I, what does this God that loves and adores me want for me? If he loves and adores me, he, I, I guess he, like a father and a child, I guess he would want me to be happy, joyous, and free. Not in the streets, shooting heroin, going to jail. Stealing, stealing whatever. robbing yeah. my neighbors. So I guess if, if I'm going to plug Ron's loving, tolerant, adoring God into my life. Now, if I got this God, What's this God want me to do next? What this God wants me to do next is turn my will over to this loving God. There's a whole new direction now. There's a whole new direction. Because I couldn't turn my will over to that motherfucker. <laughs> because he wanted you dead. Well, yeah, he didn't help my mother. My mother was tortured. I watched my mother tortured. And, and uh, so, so I had to get a new vision of God. And I did. I said, okay. If I got a God that loves and adores me, what you want me to do? wants me to do the rest of the steps in the program. It's that simple. What's the will of my higher power? Do the rest of the steps in the program. Was it uncomfortable for you at first? No. Once, you... once I knew where I had to go, it was like my dope. I'm getting there. Right. Nothing stood in my way. For, for me, I, I was very uncomfortable with the idea of God. I was just so miserable that the guy, that rarely have we seen someone thoroughly follow our path and not have this Reaction. I knew that I needed to do it. And then I was just like, I'm doing it, regardless of what I ever thought before. I'm right. going to do it now because I need that. And I need I, a new start. Desperately. Right. Desperately. You know, what worked for, for everybody else in the Jewish religion wasn't working for you. Whatever. I know no criticism. Catholic, Jew, hey, it wasn't working for me. I got my vision now, and I never named my God. You know, which, by the way, that's what I think... Uh, I, I think uh, Jesus, I'm not Jesus, um, God said to Moses at the burning bush, he said, my name is Yahweh, which is I am what I am. You can't name me. Right. So what does everybody go out and do? They name him. Right. <laughs> so, so it doesn't require a name. You know, I get a little skittish when people make name the higher power at meetings, but, uh, you know. People have to do what they have yeah, to do. Yeah. Uh, 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 as long as they actually find what we're looking for, right. then God bless. You Whatever know what I'm saying? You got, I tell him, I said, mine's one size fits all. Exactly. No, I get it. I yeah. get it. And I think it's interesting to me, and, and I don't know, like, I know so many people that refuse to get it. Uh, they refuse to, you know, they say they can't get sober. They say they can't go to meetings. They say they can't follow 12-step because of the God thing. And it's like, well, then you don't, 
you never really wanted to do it in the first place because you're not willing to give up. You know, yeah. you, you have to be willing to, to, to put something else on and see how it can fit. That willingness was everything for me, I think. Well, for a long time in, in trying to get sober without really surrendering, it, it was like no matter how long I stay sober, it was like holding my breath. Because I was trying to replace something with nothing. Right. See, I see this touching God and doing helping others, and all you see all the love I get and give in the program. Mm -hmm. That has filled the big fucking void that I had. If I didn't fill that big void, I wouldn't be alive. I had to replace that with something. Right. And it it builds over time. That's why I say the more you do, the more you get. You know? And you'll see there's all different. That statement, rarely have we seen anyone fail who has thoroughly followed the path, says that if you thoroughly follow the path, really, you fail. You know, you're going to succeed. If you thoroughly follow... It doesn't say if you don't thoroughly follow the path, you're going to drink and drug. It doesn't say that. You know? Uh, and there was a... Uh, so that's why there's a lot of people in AA who don't thoroughly follow the path. They're not drinking and drugging. Do they have a, a quality spiritual life? Most of them don't. If they don't do it. Yeah. It's just that thing is, for me, what made 12 Steps so magical. Just that statement. And, and like when I was so desperate and I was so unhappy, that statement got me to the other side. And like, obviously, like, there are, un, like, I, you know, when I got into it, I was going every day. I went every day for two years. You know what I mean? Like, and then I moved out here. And that's when things changed for me. Yeah. Um, now, I got a lot of results from my first two years in, and I've gotten results out of the work I've done now, but it's obvious to me that the results are less when the work is less. So that's what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate you coming through and sharing your story. Your story's pretty fucking crazy. When's the last time you told that much of your story at once? Oh, uh, you do it here and there. Probably never. Because okay. yeah, I, I leave a lot out at the meetings, you know, because a lot of it, I, you know, one time I, I at Bay, you know, Bayport Middle Road, my home group, I, I, I put out a moment, you know, I said, I was in my basement, I just, <laughs> I was shooting cocaine, and my arms were covered in blood, these were all tracks, we covered in blood, so I'm looking in the mirror, and, and I'm skin and bone, dripping blood, and I said, motherfucker, you're crucifying yourself. You saw it? Yeah. And what did they say in, at Bayport? They, they, they couldn't <laughs> believe it, right? Well, I'm glad you did because you gave us four decades of dopey. And I don't think anybody's ever done that before. So thank you again, Joe. It means the world to me, and I will see you at the beach. You're welcome. All right. You're welcome. Very good. So that's Smiling Joe, and I I can't tell you um, what an honor it is to be able to have such a a comprehensive storyteller, uh, oral history of this man's uh, addiction and recovery. I feel very, very, very honored that we got him on the show. It's not the kind of thing that we usually do, and I'm happy we got to do it here. Smiling Joe is a huge resource of mine. Like, I go to that meeting, and I go because I know he'll be there. He's one of the reasons I go there. It's because he, when he shares, it is back to basics. It is just the thing that you need to hear when you go to a meeting. Um, so it's special for me. And now I also know the backstory of Smiling Joe when I hear him share. Because I didn't know half of that shit. I didn't know that he was, uh, you know, 
on speedballs for that long or how much heroin he actually did. I certainly didn't know he stole diamond rings in the cuffs of his jeans. Fucking love that shit. So, it's, it's you know, the end of August is upon us, which means it's the end of the Wicked Fire summer with Smiling Joe. And I'm going to celebrate my five years. I'm excited. And before we go, I want to read a dopey email that I just got that I really like. So hold on. Dear Dave, I love you. Now, dear Dave, I just found your podcast a few months ago, and I'm working my way back. I'm into January of 2020, and I keep going back further and further. I haven't gotten to any of Chris's shows yet, but I know I will. I can empathize with you 100% on losing a friend to this horrible fucking disease. I know he'll be in your heart forever and the dopey nations as well. I'm in 12-step recovery myself and just celebrated four years on July 19th, 2020. I can honestly tell you that the promises have come true in my life. It's fucking amazing that they actually do come true. My recovery seed got planted 15 years ago, and this is my 14th time trying to stay sober. So I guess you could say it took me 15 years to get four years that I have today. I'm a hardcore crystal meth junkie and shot meth like heroin addicts shoot heroin. I had to have it twice a day in order to function. Well, I wouldn't call it functioning. I was a complete fucking soulless psycho. I will tell you that at one of the lowest points of my using career, I was a homeless street junkie. Junkie. Committing petty crimes and doing horrible low-life things just to get a fix. However, I can look back and laugh at some of the crazy shit that I did. I remember one time I was walking up the street, maybe about 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. It was quite a busy street during Phoenix rush hour. As I looked across the street, I noticed a little chihuahua-looking dog. It was running across the busy street without a care in the world. The next thing you know, a big black SUV with a soccer mom as the driver just smashes the poor little thing. Keep in mind, I've never seen this fucking dog in my entire life. However, my immediate reaction was to over-exaggerate how upset I was over this dog getting run over. This lady gets out of the SUV, apologizing over and over again. I pulled out some fake tears and explained to her how it was my friend's dog. I went on and on and put on a big show of how awful it will be to have to explain this to their family. Then I proceeded to explain how there was no money available to have the dog cremated and just didn't know what to do. As this poor, unsuspecting soccer mom buys my bullshit, she proceeded to hand me $40 cash. I mean, that, does that seem like enough money to cremate a dog? Anyway, then I grabbed an empty paper grocery bag and piece of cardboard from a nearby dumpster. I scooped the little guy up as his eyeball was hanging out of his head. I told the lady, thank you very much for the help, and went on my wary, my, I went on my merry way up the street toward my dope dealer's house. I threw the dead dog in the trash can and got my fix for the day. God, what the fuck was wrong with me? Ha, 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 ha. Like I said, I didn't have a soul. Every little situa situation that came about, I'd find a way to manipulate it just so I could get high. Look, man, I definitely earned my seat. If I could change anything at all about my past, it would be nothing. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be the man that I am today. I have a real life with a real family and real friends today. I'm independent. I'm finally a grown-up at the fucking age of 41. It wasn't easy, but I know for a fact that a power greater than myself exists. 
because I should be a dead man with all the horrible shit I put myself through over the past 20 years. The people in my life today are all miracles. Dave, you are a miracle. The Dopey Nation is a miracle. I'm so grateful I found your podcast. I listen to it daily, and it is a huge part of my recovery. We live, we learn, and we grow wisdom the longer we stay sober. Thank you so much, Dave, for all that you do. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Your friend in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, Travis A. I love that email. Thank you, Travis. Congrats on the four years. You know, Chris lived a bit in Scottsdale, Arizona, so I think that there's some sort of synchronistic connection. And I love the idea of a fucking drug addict getting 40 bucks for somebody else's dead dog. You just have to wonder whose dog was it. You know, what happened to the actual owner of the dog? Like, what happened there? I don't know. I appreciate the email. Send in emails and voicemails to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And even more importantly, go to iTunes and leave a five-star review and make it nice and snappy and subscribe to Dopey. I'm going to read a review just because what the fuck. If I'm telling you to leave a review, I want you guys to hear a nice recent review on Dopey. A nice five-star review. Here we go. Five stars love by C. Winstow. Uh, she says, I love this podcast. My girlfriend introduced me to it. I had heard of it on This American Life. Great show. Five stars. Thank you, C. Winstow. See, that's all you have to do, everybody. Here's another one. This is five stars from the great MC Confuse, an old-time listener. He says, Dave, you can keep your five years, but this NyQuil has got to go. I was the first one to notice Chris relapsing, and now I'm the one begging you not to underestimate your habit's evil claws lurking in the dark milliliters. Milliliters? Milliliters. Oh, the dark milliliters of NyQuil. All right. Thank you, MC Confuse. I appreciate that, and I do remember that you did mention stuff about Chris before he died. Know that I do not have any more NyQuil. I only took it the one time. And my sponsor actually listened to the episode, and he called me up, and he said that he's never co-signed me just drinking NyQuil to sleep. He says if I'm sick, I can take NyQuil. Otherwise, I can't take it. So me taking NyQuil for a night, you know, of getting my Zs without sniffing, snuffling, stuffy head fever... Uh, I can't take it. I cannot take NyQuil just to rest. But I haven't asked him about Z-Quil yet. But we'll see. We'll see where we're at. Thank you, MC Confuse. Leave a fucking review. Subscribe. Send in voicemails, emails. Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Reddit. Thank you to the great Cormac for your Reddit. Thank you, everybody, for all you do. And before I forget... Thank you to the anonymous person who sent in the amazing Dopey Cheers parody at the front. If you really want to know who did it, it was Sam. Sam does all these songs. So thank you, Sam. Submit your own Dopey TV parody whenever you have a chance. Record it on your phone, record it on your garage band, record it on whatever you record anything on, and send it into dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And before I really forget, happy fourth anniversary to the great Justin England who's hanging out across the pond, doing his thing, taking care of his family. Happy four years, mate. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. 
But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had